Host of the Year Award, which doesn't mean much. Who's only one nominee? It's Hank. There originally was going to be two nominees, but the other guy died. Who's the other guy? Don't it wasn't Andy? Or was it, it was a different Hank. Oh, just oh, and the, those Hanks are disposable. There's a lot of disposable Hanks. No, Andy Richter, thankfully, is doing well and is okay. Uh, presumably, in his Malibu mini mansion with several hookers. I, I see Andy Richter having a very bizarre life outside of Conan. I think he's married with, like, three kids, and he's just the most bland, normal white dude in the world. I like to think he's a mix between Artie Lang and Charlie Sheen, which is no-nos and a lot of AIDS. Or, it's HIV. It was just HIV. He didn't, Charlie Sheen didn't have AIDS. All right, so we are not doing a recently seen this week. Instead, since it's the best movies of 2019, the top five movies of 2019 for both of us, we're going to talk about some movies that didn't make the list, but we wanted to discuss a little bit anyways. Uh, so let's first talk about something that came out on Netflix, I think in February, if I'm not mistaken, maybe a different time, but it was Velvet Buzzsaw, a movie about haunted art. Despite what all trailers are trying to tell you, it's just about haunted art. I liked Velvet Buzzsaw. I recall when uh, I, I think it was back on the live Death by DVD, I, I used it for a recently scene, and you didn't specifically care for it. I think a lot of that had to do with you you know, actually living a bit of this, though. You, I mean, you didn't live with haunted art. You might have. That could be a cool story. We should run with uh, haunted art and so what I was going to say. I was going to say you, you know, have been in that environment and have acknowledged it and dealt with a lot of these people, um, but the haunted art story would be better. Well, that's the thing is, like... Um the the way it kind of took down the art world and kind of discussed the people who were involved in it and the ways things work that was interesting to me but it the the core of the plot this haunted art plot just seemed lazy and it wasn't very intriguing at all um and i think he kind of stopped short on really what you could have done with the plot and as it involved how art in the art world is corrupted in itself, how art is in, like very uh, subjective and all these different things about that community, but they just kind of stopped short on that and just went, eh, I don't know, haunted art, and we're going to have some cool visuals. And it does have some really good visuals. It's a visually intriguing movie, but it just doesn't go really anywhere. I will agree that it cops out a bit toward the middle that you, you start getting really interesting characters and you get this insight as to who everybody is. And, you know, Jake Jelly Beans is this famous-ish art critic and you are kind of seeing things through his eyes. And it then just, you know, you, you get this establishing touch of who these people are and then it just goes away to more, like, plastic, boring egos. The Tony Collette character just becomes... I, I don't like... I don't want to say a raging bitch, but they just... Yeah, they just turn her into kind of an asshole and then kill her, and that's you know a real waste of some amazing talent with somebody like Jake Jellybeans and Tony Collette against each other. You could have had a lot of fun, and uh, John Malkovich is great. I mean, as usual, 
he's he's pretty great, even in uh, you know some of the worst productions he's been in. But his character doesn't really do anything either. You've got this guy with uh, you know artist block, uh, also abstaining from alcohol, trying to stay clean and, and recreate his life. And a lot of different angles could have gone into that. And he's again wasted too. So yeah, I mean, everyone like but the, Jake Gyllenhaal is the same director, and I can't remember his name right now. But he also directed Nightcrawler. Um, and I thought Nightcrawler was a pretty terrific movie, and he really kind of got to the, the deep darkness of something like, uh, you know, uh, freelance photography, freelance news people, uh, and just the darkness within Dan humanity. Gilroy. And I think he really kind of picked that story apart and gave it for all it was worth. And then Velvet Buzzsaw, it's just almost like he was making a more exploitation film and kind of not focusing so much on what he could really say about the art community as much as it was like poking fun at stereotypes that he's seen in the art community before. And then moving on with this kind of standard bland horror plot that just, it's just not very interesting overall. It reminded me a little bit, uh, you bringing up, you know, him making an exploitation film and it being a little bit lazier. It kind of reminded me of, you know, like a, how we've brought up before that neon demon, um, neon, God damn, but my brain is just, yeah, my brain's just farting. Yeah, there's so many things that start with uh, Neon that you can go with, but Neon Demon is certainly an exploitation film, and it was masterfully made as an art film uh, that's kind of masquerading as an exploitation film as to where Velvet Buzzsaw is kind of approaching the whole direction poorly, that they're trying to make this piece about art, but at the same time you're going with an exploitation, you know, vein kind of a feel. You want to have it to be a little sleazy, but the product in all is a little bit too clean and tight, and it takes away from the sleaze that you want to be uh, presenting in a, in a situation like this. You know, it doesn't have to be nudity or over-the-top gore, but if you want to go with a 42nd Street, you know, grindhouse kind of thing, you have to handle it a little bit differently, and, you know, sometimes it's eating people, you know, like that's what happens in Neon Demon. But well, that's the difference with done. Neon Demon like it's is it's actually saying something about the fashion industry, being a model, the nature of beauty, um, philosophical about the idea of beauty and how people see themselves and see each other. And like Bella Bus all seemed like it was so much more just about, hey, look at these guys. Aren't they dicks? And it, that's just not as interesting as something like what Neon Demon did with the ideas. You're able to – like Redman was able to make an exploitation film that also had a concept and also had a lot of great visuals and his style behind it. And it said something, and Velvet Buzzsaw just doesn't really say anything at all. It's still enjoyable on my end as just, you know, a, a piece, a popcorn piece, something to sit down and watch. When I when I sat down and initially watched it, I think I enjoyed it for that. And seeing all these people together is always pleasurable. But again, a lot of the what would have been a masterful performance and a really great cast just wasn't used that well. I mean, everybody's great on their own, but combining them would have been a lot stronger and made it a lot more fun. Yeah, it's just, it's an all right film. I mean, I can't say anything more than that. I didn't think it was particularly excellent. I didn't think it was a masterpiece. I think that um, the particular director has a lot of different tools in his toolbox to make great films. I think he just kind of missed the... um, kind of missed the boat with this one. And I will like, cause I'm pretty sure, um, Velvet Buzzsaw was his second film. He's been a writer in Hollywood forever, but this was like his second directorial film. And another movie we'll be talking about later on my top five is a sophomore film by a quote unquote new director. 
and he was able to take kind of the same sophomore effort and make something very bold, very interesting. And I just didn't see that from Velvet Buzzsaw. It was just kind of, I don't know, overall, just kind of a cop-out. Geez, so I guess is it my turn to pick something that's not on the list, but... Feel free. We're going to talk? Yeah, I uh, I don't know. I mean, I, I enjoyed Velvet Buzzsaw, but again, it's probably... I haven't thought about it since I've seen it, so I doubt I'll really like sit back down and enjoy it again or rewatch it. So that, too, kind of has something to say for itself. I've talked about it before, but if a movie doesn't have a rewatchability, there's not a lot going on for me. So, okay, we'll move into something we both kind of like. Fred Durst! It's oh, Limp time. All right, partner, you know what time it is. Well, this movie almost made my... It, it's, it is on my top ten of the year list. I will say that. It did make my top ten this year. Um... Bad time to light a cigarette. Um, yeah, so Fred Durst, this is his second directorial, and Fred Durst, he knows what to do behind a camera, and that's the, I guess, funny thing is reading people's opinions on this, and this movie has been heavily judged because Fred Durst had something to do with it, and people like to make fun of him, but he knows what to do behind a camera. He knows what to he do on direct. set. He makes, yeah, it's a sharp-looking movie. I do have issues, though. I've got, I think, more so than anything is you, again, kind of like with Velvet Buzzsaw, you've got a lot of great talent and a lot of cool people you'd like to see together, and the writing just is not incredible with this. It's a solid idea, and I understand what's going on, but there, it's not even loose ends. There's just dumb shit that happens that's way too unbelievable to make the movie fun. It's interesting seeing John Travolta play somebody that Oh, you didn't mention the title of the movie. Uh, this is The Fanatic. The, the Fanatic. The, the, the awesome new cutting-edge horror story by Fred Durst. I think it's interesting that John Travolta chooses to play somebody that I, I feel has a, a mental disability or you know some sort of incapacitation and you know is part of a religion that pretty much denies anything of that sort absolutely existing. So it takes you to wonder if this is you know almost trolling on Fred Durst's level of his casting his direction with the story what he decided to write about is it more or less a fuck you to the fans than anything else and i think it is and that's kind of why i i really it got under my skin in a good way i don't know if i agree with you if fred durst is like making so much of an ironic film and so much of a middle finger i think he truthfully fucked up in a lot of places making this film but that's also what makes the movie great because he in no way had control over his actors as a director, you have to look at what John Travolta is trying to do in your film and go, ooh, that might be a little too far there, John. But then again... got to take a big dump. Well, I mean, the script itself, it was not much to work with because it's a crazed fan film, and there's been thousands of them at this point. Um, but I think the beauty in this film is in the details, though. The details of the fact that the cast did get away from him. The fact that he really didn't know what story he wanted to tell because it ends up in just so many crazy fucking scenarios that don't make any sense why these characters are all of a sudden acting like this, why this happens, what's going on here. But that's also the beauty of the film because I, I will say I unironically like this film. I don't think it's a bad film like in the vein oh, of yeah. The Room or something as people have been saying. I don't think it's a bad film at all. I think it's... It's definitely not one of those best worst things no. at all. It's pretty well produced. It's, it's, it's not perfectly written and, you know, we say that like... It's some blase thing, like, it's got writing faults. No, there's some serious Major. fucking problems with the story. Like, it's it's not, like, 
no one's going to notice some of these problems, that they're pretty relevant to what's going on with the, the entire you know piece and the story and this character. But just looking at Fred Durst and his career and how hated, you know, he knows he, people make fun of him. He's fucking aware of, of memes. He knows what the internet is, and he still is out there doing this. So there's a piece of me that really thinks that at least his attempt to write this was maybe not a, a grand fuck you, but he still you know knew what he was doing. He still knew, knows these types of horror fans, and I think we all do, especially the deeper the scene goes and the more the underground you get into, uh, you know, the, the horror scene or whatever you want to call it, that there definitely are some incredibly obsessive people that, you know, I, I don't, you know, I'm not calling names, but some people's obsessions with fucking whatever they're into is is kind of frightening and i think that's really the point of what you're being exposed to here is not that the celebrity is a dick or not that this guy has mental problems but it's the fact that anybody anywhere you know like taxi driver could go unhinged or become unhinged that it doesn't matter what it's horror or wrestling or whatever it just happens to be horror in this you know faculty i think i'm about 50 50 on if Fred Durst knew exactly what he was doing. Because there is a scene in the film where Devin Sawa, who's back from fucking obscurity all of a sudden, and he looks like an old man. He's got a six-pack. He's in a car with his son, and this scene is completely independent because there's this no lead-up and there's no ending to this scene other than I just want him in the car to discuss with his son about a band called Limp Biscuit. So that's where I'm thinking, what are you trying to say by this, Fred? Because are you that, like, not self-aware to know that you probably shouldn't put, like, a weird plug in your movie about how, quote-unquote, hot your band used to be? But at the same time, are you – but were you very self-aware and you were making fun of Devin Sawa, who's trying to hold on to this this youth he used to have in the 90s, that sort of thing? But – I don't know. That's another intriguing fact about this movie is what were you trying to do, Fred? Because I'm not real positive, but it it is a really enjoyable film, and it's a well-made film at times, and at other times, it's, it's a total disaster. So that's what makes it interesting to me. It was definitely one of the least boring films I saw this year. I enjoyed it over Velvet Buzzsaw because I just found the, the whole thing entertaining. John Travolta... His acting, his first line is, I got to take a poop, for Christ's sakes. I mean, hurry up, I got to take a big poop. Yeah, it's just a totally ridiculous scene at the beginning, which you have to know that your first line of dialogue introducing a character, if you're giving him that to say you're making a specific kind of film. But I also don't think Fred uh, Durst can be that self-aware of himself and just make this totally uh, ironic movie. I I, I don't see that happening, so I'm still 50-50 on the whole thing, but I really enjoyed it. What makes me question things even more and really annoys me about the scene you were just talking about is the fact that he chose to not use one of many hits. Like, Limp Bizkit has a lot of radio hits that, whether people like to remember or not, were successful in the early 2000s. Chose just a fucking random, like, like recent song, like like not something anybody has heard, and Limp Bizkit still continues to tour and put out new records just about every year. But who the fuck hears them? Like I, I there's one called Gold Cobra I faintly remember, and before that, like you could have thrown on Rollin' or Nookie or something that everyone watching the movie would have gone, oh, I remember 2002. I recall that, yes. <laughs> he you might, know, that would have helped a little bit. I don't know. He might have just been advertising this new album. I don't understand this Fred Durst character. I don't know if he... If, just 
doesn't realize what he's doing or not. That's what's so intriguing. Yeah, I look forward to really actually seeing Fred Durst make some more movies. Oh, and, definitely. You know, knowing that, yeah, he's, he's a horror fan. He's going to make more horror movies, and I look forward to it. I will go out of my way to see the next one in theaters because I think um, I think this movie only made like three like thousand dollars. I don't think it made a lot it of did, money, but did did real poor at the theater. But it, it only got it was released on VOD basically the same day. So well, another film that we're going to eventually talk about that's on your list and mine because I guess just like getting into this too. I, my list isn't you know a straight up. This is the the very very best of 2019. Most of mine are movies that I saw and really enjoyed, and I do have an order to them. Three movies that appear on your list, I unarguably feel were three of the best movies of 2019. So when we get to those and, and discuss those, you know, we'll both divulge, uh, you know, vicariously, whatever we want to say. That, that was a weird wording. Um, I don't know why I said it that way. <laughs> but, yeah. uh, but, but my whole point where I was going with this is this movie made like three grand and one of your movies, which I feel is one of the not just best of the year, but best in a really long time, only made like eight grand. So judging things on a monetary value is a little uh, skin deep. You know, it's it's stupid at sometimes because just because a movie made three grand and cost 20 million doesn't mean that there's not some integrity inside of it and the fanatic was a lot of fun it's a, a, a cop-out i guess reviewing a movie and saying it was a lot of fun but you really need to sit down what and the evaluate when like, you're watching movies if it isn't for entertainment in the long run i mean yes you can say things with film you can make great statements about culture about history but at the end of the day, I want to be entertained. Who cares if you have a message, if your message bores the shit out of me who's sitting through? And, and you know, as uh, we've stated, I think there's a different direction behind the scenes with Fred uh, than you do. Well, you're 50-50 on it. But there is something that you can take from this. It's not a completely messageless, you know, movie. It's not just whatever. There is something that you can take uh, about your feelings in general on anything. I mean, this specific character is so massively obsessed, not just with the genre, but with this one person that, you know, is he a stalker or is he mentally unbalanced? You've got all these questions and a lot of kind of provocative things that somebody like we wouldn't expect brought up to your table. So Fred is a competent guy, and if he, anything, is sharpening his skill. His first picture was uh, like a high school football movie, I think, but not horror at all. It was just a, a studio, you know, kind of thing, and he went out there, and again, it was adequate. This guy knows he's not just a celebrity that's jumping behind a camera, and like Rob Zombie, I can make a movie, and I'm not dissing or, or shitting on Rob at all. His first film, I think, is my favorite out of everything he's done, even though it's got a lot of problems with it, but... I think Fred went about things a little bit better. I think he made a sharper, better introduction career-wise into the genre uh, than somebody like Rob Zombie. I, I'm sure everyone will agree or disagree with me. Before we move on to the next movie, can I get a poppycock out of you? Poppycock. Poppycock! Poppycock! Welcome to Hollywood, where dreams are made. Thank you, Travolta. You've given the performance of the year. All right. This is one of those things I wanted to see a character or an actor getting into character. Like this, if this gets a you know making of, I'd love a couple hours of Travolta, you know, getting into this character. The haircut's ridiculous. It's almost offensive at some points because clearly, you know, this character has some sort of of mental problem. So something is not firing, you know, correctly in his head. So are they poking fun at this whole thing? Does it matter? No. Let's talk about a movie that is more than likely going to get us shut down as a podcast and lose all sorts of respect for us because I saw a movie that was 
one of the top grossing films of the year. And everybody loved it. And I thought it kind of fucking sucked. And that is Joker. I did not enjoy Joker very much at all. If you follow me on social media, you already know this isn't going to be the the highest review. Um, (laughs) Because I've been not necessarily trashing this movie, but I've made, uh, I think, a pretty clear statement that it's not bullshit. By all means, Todd Phillips is a talented guy. Made a good movie. I love Joaquin. He's, he's, they're all great. Everything's great. Fuck it. Uh, I've seen it. I've, I've seen this movie not just once. I've seen it like 30 fucking times and I'm tired of it and I don't care and you've sent the wrong message. That's your fucking problem right there. You sent the wrong message to the wrong people. Well, like overall, the movie, as you said, was, it was a well-made film. Um, Joaquin Phoenix is amazing in it. His transformation is truly one for the ages. But at the same time, the story was god-fucking-awful of this movie. Okay, you're never in my life did I once think I would see a Joker origin film and not find anything humorous in it. It is the most depressing film of just watching a prick get beat up. Yeah, on. but we make him laugh. Well, it's, it, it's the Joker because he laughs a lot. You get it? You know, he laughs. It's serious. It's, it's, like it's the we're, we're doing it serious Christ now. For fuck's sake. So let's watch Jesus get beat up the entire And that's honestly how they end up treating this character is he's this great new voice. And it, I mean, comparable to the fanatic with its, uh, you know, showing of these characters and the, the complete wrong message behind them, because, you know, you can take something from the fanatic about, you know, mental awareness or people's obsession, but it also is a vulgar display of violence through a very unhinged person, which essentially is the Joker, but it's two fucking hours. I lose all sympathy for your character, which I'm assuming you're trying to gain sympathy for as you presented it throughout this film. When the character decides to go on a self-satisfying suicidal mission to kill the people that wronged him on live TV. And then at the end, he's celebrated as a god. Thank you. I mean, they did start some things. They did um, talk about awareness of class uh, class consciousness, um, but they didn't go anywhere with that. It ultimately had nothing to do with the rich and poor as much as it was somebody has wronged you the girl next door thinks you're a fucking creep you have an imaginary relationship with her and all these people have shit on you and what's the best way to deal with that blood revenge get a gun kill some people yeah well, that's what's really I mean, gonna change the, things the wrong message has definitely been sent to the wrong people here because all you've done is made an example to these guys that still think fight club is this big macho thing and not about being a homosexual you've armed them with something now now all the guys with the the profile pictures from kubrick movies that don't quite get being alex isn't a good thing are loaded to the fucking nines with all of the well I, the joker says i watched the movie and the movie says that i deserve this you weren't nice to me and essentially all you did was show a guy kill somebody like uh that what's that british fucking talk show guy piers morgan or whatever just a dick yeah you've just had that deserve to die i can tell you that much he made fun of a guy he deserves to be shot on national television 
you just gave this like provocative display of shooting an asshole, but for what real reasons outside of this? I mean, because again, I'm not a sympathetic to this character at all. The entire movie, it's like, no, you need to get uh, other help. And you've been to one place and they're not helping you, and everybody laughs at you, and it sucks. And I completely get it, but you know, at least Carrie tried. <laughs> she knew they were going to laugh at her, and she still went to prom. I mean, uh, what what's the message you're trying to show to me here? Just give up, give up, and cause uh, chaos, cause problems. I mean. Okay. Well, some people just want to watch the world burn, Hank, and that makes me feel good about living in my sad, solitary, edgelord world. That well, even like look at Fight Club uh, when they start Project Mayhem, when all of these crazy things uh, begin to really go into motion, the narrator begins to realize that he's gotten out of control, that and that fascism Tyler isn't is- the answer. Yes, this is not what we need to do. I've allowed this this entity to become pretty much a fucking dictator, and this is going to cause problems. The answer is, you know, and what did he try to do? He tries to go and kill Tyler, where there is, like, that's not the answer. Eventually the narrator, I mean, the movie ends differently than, than the Polonic book, but eventually the narrator comes to an ending, and there's a point to it because he's stopping the progression of pretty much evil as to where the Joker goes almost completely against that. It's the same dark, gritty, get out of my face you're not your fucking khakis or whatever message you're trying to display to people but in the long run all you've done is just said well if you don't get your cake and you don't get to eat it kill the guy at baskin robbins because he didn't get a cake but like i said i mean they do have some class awareness in the film and if you would have taken that thread to make it more about that as opposed well, they to... they try to. I mean, he gets jumped by some guys that work for Wayne Enterprise, so he really shows them a lesson. Every time that you're given something relevant, like, you know, the, the difference in classes in the United States or uh, people with mental problems not getting taken care of, the end result in it is like, well, I didn't get my way, so I'm just going to... I don't know why I'm doing Tom Waits. It's a different joker, <laughs> but... <laughs> that, I can't stop, but it, it just, you know what I'm saying? It just doesn't have, uh, at the end of the day, any relevance because you tried to display all these things and you showed us, sure, there's obvious problems going on in Gotham City, but this guy doesn't go about solving them. And I know it's the Joker and you're supposed to have this evilness to the character, but again, something but you, you didn't brought present up. any of that evil. Guy. You presented that he's basically justified in all of his actions because his life sucked, and oh, what's the point what's of the punchline? He was abused as a child, too. Jesus Christ. It was just sad. It was just like, this well, you make depressing. This, you make this depressing, humanized, victimized Joker, and so what's the point of Batman now? I mean, the Joker is a villain that is causing mass problems, and Batman is supposedly the hero. So now we've turned the, the thing around, and I get that. Batman's now just beating up a victim at this point. Well, that's the point, I think, at some uh, instances, that now you're questioning the direction of what's going on. Okay, what is going on? Now you're just going to make a sequel, and is it going to show him becoming the, the, the prince crime lord clown? or what? It doesn't matter now. You've already given us all this. So how much more crazy is he going to get? The guy, that's the problem. The Joker's not crazy. He's not insane. He's just been victimized and broken by society, and now I get it. You want me to make that a hero. You want that to be some Che Guevara message of rebellion and people wearing it on T-shirts, and I'm hip to that. That's whatever, but you didn't fucking actually do it. You you just made this character that you molded from 50, 60 other guys. You just took Taxi Driver and you made it more sorrowful because you can't always get behind Taxi Driver. I mean, 
what you're supposed to do with that movie is look at this life. You're looking at it through uh, somebody else's eyes. You're just privy to what's happening. You're not sympathetic. I'm not, I guess. Yeah, and I can separate myself and say this is about a villain and all that. But, I mean, at the end of the day, this is the product you were putting out. And like getting into comic book references, if you get into something like The Watchmen, who the bad guy, spoiler for a comic book that came out in 1984, um, the villain of Ozymandias and his evil plot to kill millions of New Yorkers was in reality a plot to stop nuclear war and more people from dying. That is a complicated character who has a lot of differing positions in his head that he's dealing with. And I'm not saying he's an anti-hero. What I'm saying is that's an, a complicated villain in the story and like a philosophic idea that is needs to be considered in your own mind. And in Joker, it, there's none of that. It's basically my life sucked, time for my blood revenge. And when I get my blood revenge, all of the city hoists me on their shoulders like Jesus fucking Christ. And I dance on a cat because it's I a turned fucking, it into clown world like it should be because the life is a comedy. It's just like a, a, a little dream that you read on Reddit late at night from the incel part. You know, it's it's you can see thousands of posts and messages and people all over the world that have made little vlogs that have, you know, and we've discussed what incels are, that have gone against, uh, I guess, the normative ways of dating and living because they are shunned or they feel that they're shunned. And then you've literally just made a movie about it. And I know that wasn't what they meant to do. The whole point is the class uh, issues and fighting the rich, you know, uh, the people fighting back. But all you've done is, is given a guy that is upset because things didn't go his way again. You've made an incel, like, capital movie for incels. And I, I don't object to making a film about a character like this. What I object to is you ultimately didn't say anything about the character. You didn't give any of these people hope. You gave them a, a, a dumb, like, reason of just, like, yeah, I mean, might as well. I mean, yeah, the world does suck. And what really disheartens me about the whole thing is it made a billion dollars so people are going to see this two and three times. I have questions about the people who sat through this depressing, sad movie, which it is. It's not all like fun and games and comic book shit. It's a sad drama that's incredibly violent. Why did you watch this several times? What do you like about this character? Because he's a sad fucking prick. One thing I will say on that is a lot of people in my experience that I've seen rewatching this movie and really, really, you know, digging into it aren't incels they're not you know the people that you are worried about shooting up a theater i think it's a very different movie than what we've had in a long time and i as i've said it's to me just a remake of many many other things and the violence isn't shocking to me because i've seen taxi driver and i've seen a clockwork orange and i i understand where it's coming from and you know we like movies but it's people that haven't seen things like this, people that haven't gone back and aren't going to sit down. And Taxi Driver sounds boring. People that aren't aware of these previous uh, examples of film that this movie kind of comes from or is in the same environment from, they're just not familiar with it. So it's new to people. People think this is groundbreaking. You know, they've never seen something like this before because the last 20 years, 10 years or so, you don't really have. You had The Dark Knight. Really, the last movie that was similar to this, again, was a fucking Batman movie. You had The Dark Knight and then... um. The, the third one with Bane, that that, again, tried to show, uh, you know, a big difference in classes and the, the upper echelon of Gotham City and how things worked and was a bit 
you know, political in its nature, but I, I hate having to defend those, but I think those are better Batman movies. And we just, I just recently stated, I'm not really fond of Christopher Nolan's Batman. I'm not fond of Batman in general. I'm done like, with it's Batman. Not, it's just boring at this point. It's the same goddamn story over and over again. We sucked all the as fun we out of it. This, I'm wearing a fucking Superman shirt. So, like, for one, I like, you know, a little bit difference in comic books. But you're trying to, you know, just write something and be honest about it. Going back now, the uh, the Nolan movies aren't that bad. Because we're going to get another Joaquin Phoenix Joker movie. And I guess it could just be the same thing. And he's a crime. Put some fucking humor into it, for Christ's sakes. Well, the problem is you're going to have to introduce other characters now. I mean, now that you've already instituted who the Joker is, what's next? Are we going to get a super gritty background story to who the Penguin is? Are we going to find out why the Riddler likes to ask riddles? I don't fucking care. I, you know, I, and it's not even from it's being Batman. I don't care. What what level of realism more do we need to be added? Like, well, I'm going to get, here's a, the, the real Harvey Dent story. All right. I, Okay, I guess go with it. I mean, I'm no one to tell an artist what to do or what not to do, but is any of this stuff necessary? I mean, what matters about the Joker outside of it made a billion fucking dollars? It, what really substantially matters? Because I don't think I think I don't think it's messageless, but I think the fanatic pays off with a message more than the Joker does or Joker. Well, at least the fanatic has some positivity into it, and there's just nothing positive in this movie. And if you find positives in it, let me know because I didn't see anything positive. God finally stood up for himself. Jesus Christ. How about you just like, no, that <laughs> you don't get a gun. How about that? That's not an answer for anything. Where somebody stands up for themselves that isn't completely violence for the sake of violence. Because in the long run, just shooting these people and killing them, yeah, it looked great. It's a fucking great scene. Like, when Joaquin, uh, spoilers, guys, fucking gets rid of his opposition, uh, I guess trying to mask that spoiler a little bit better, it's an awesome scene. It looks really, really cool. Uh, His hand motion is just so fluent from when he pulls the gun, and everyone's great. It's one of those situations where everything looks good. Everything feels good, sounds good. It's it's great. It just didn't hit. It just you didn't. And we you know mentioned this with the fanatic. You don't always have to have a message. And at its core, uh, watching or you know uh, and being involved with any form of art is for pleasure. So you watch something, you look at something, you read a book. You're doing it for pleasure. And when all you're given at the end of the day is well, at least he shot that prick. I don't feel any pleasure. You know, and I like watching people get shot. I like horror movies. I want to see some violence. Show me some gore. Let me see it. But give me a reason for it. Don't just fucking shoot a guy because he picked on you. I mean, if that's how we were going to do things, I'd have shot you 10 years ago. You know, I mean, come on. That's not, <laughs> that's just not the, the, uh, the violence isn't the answer. You know, think of the children, that sort of thing. Well, I mean, the only thing is you're going to get into little areas where much like mafia movies like Scarface and Goodfellas, you have people who really get into the awesomeness behind it. Ain't the mafia great? I see Goodfellas. I don't see those people as heroes. I think they're interesting characters, but I don't see them as like anyone that should be looked up to in any way, shape, or form. Even like like Scarface or any of that shit. It's like I get the appreciation. I get you. You know, you want to be. You want to come from nothing. Like you know, look, look at Scarface. He was just a Cuban refugee, and he came over here, and he started fucking killing people, and then selling cocaine. Now I get what you take from that. You just want to be really rich and successful and have everything. But again, the whole point of that movie, you know, the globe, the world is yours. Him falling from the end, and them showing that fucking shot from the original movie, the world is yours. 
you have to actually take it. That it's it's a euphemism, you know. It, it's you got to read into it. It's not get famous and I'm going to die like that. No, these aren't uh, goals that you should want to have. And when you like casino is another good example because Goodfellas, I've never understood people watching that for like. I just want to be that way because nothing good fucking happens in that movie. Goodfellas is somewhat comparable to something like Joker because it is entirely dismal. By the time you get to the end of the movie, it's like, fuck, these guys are just dicks. All they do is fuck each other over. They're just assholes. And there's not a lot. And there's always an argument. People will say till the day they die, the day he dies and I die, that Goodfellas is uh, Marty's finest picture. But I think at least if you're going to try and idolize a, a bad character, Casino is a better bet. I mean, well, okay. it ends okay for everybody but Tommy, so... Getting back into Alan Moore as a writer, um, going to the killing joke, uh, that Joker story, you find out the uh, Joker origin story, his family gets killed, and he loses his mind, and at least like, he has some good reasons in that to, like, to have snapped, and in this, like, he's got reasons, but, like, none of these are great reasons to become like, uh, like, None of these people that he kills really deserve to die. They were assholes, but Jesus Christ, you're going to shoot Jimmy Fallon in the face because he, he fucking made fun of you on his talk show a few times? Well, that brings up a pretty decent question. Does anybody actually deserve to die? I mean, that's something that this movie is kind of asking you and is saying, like, well, they picked on you. They deserve to die. I come from a, a belief that nobody deserves to die or should be able to dictate that, that no human should be able to say, you're going to fucking die today. And sure, that opens up death penalty and, and cause and effect and all sorts of things that we'll get into at another date. But when you put a question like that into the general public's mind, is, is that really, you know, the type of provocative, that's the word of the night, I guess, art question that you want to be asking people? Is that the, the thing you want rattling in people's brains? Do, I, do, do they deserve to die? Because I don't think the average person should even have that thought. Uh, I don't think anybody should be out there, you know, thinking that they got disrespected at Best Buy and they can just walk in and shoot the motherfucker because that's how things work. Walking Phoenix did it. No, he didn't. Walking Phoenix shot a movie for 12 hours and then went home and probably smoked some pot. And that's what Walking Phoenix did. Nobody was harmed on, on the making of this goddamn movie. Read the credits. It's the end of the credits. Yes, it's it's a fictional story. And you should treat it as such. It's, it's not a training manual. And that's what I think is the most alarming thing, is that people get weaponized to say by art like this, and they don't read into it. It's not reading into it. They don't look at what... Well, they don't take it apart any, much more than it is, and they just kind of look at it. I've, I've known a motherfucker who, like, he really got into really shitty fucking movies, and he was always a fan of the villain, and he was always the kind of guy who kept saying, it's better to be infamous than famous. It's, it's faster, easier. I don't know. People want to relate to the bad guy and they want to feel like the Joker and characters like this because they really aren't. You know, people have... Well, they want power. They want to feel powerful in some way and he never felt powerful in his life and, oh, this is a way I can feel powerful and he does it. Well, people want that, too, because they don't, you know, they have a normal life. They go to work. They're respected. Everything's okay. And, that, you know, you have these people that sit around and they fantasize and they want things to go wrong. They want arguments. They want things to be negative because that's what they get off on. So, you know, it's better to be infamous. So you're saying it's better to be an asshole and have a chip on your shoulder because what? You know, you have a normal job, a normal life. You're not 
infamous, you're not famous. And that attitude in general frightens me because these people want something for no reason. Work at it then. You want to be infamous? Work on something. Paint. Uh, learn to write. Type. Do something. Become infamous. Figure out a way to do it. Make a, a movie that nobody's ever seen before. Do something that isn't chaotic violence for the sake of being unpleasant. You know, just because you're in a bad mood doesn't mean you have to fucking take it out on everybody. And that's literally what I took from this this film. You know, guy had a bad time, and now everybody has a bad time. Oh, all right. Yeah. Thanks. I liked it more when Todd Phillips was fucking following Gigi Allen around and filming him shit on people. <laughs> all right, that's enough about that fucking movie. That, that's literally all I have to say about it, probably for the rest of my life. Is there anything else uh, before yeah. we get into the list that you want to talk about, Hank? Because my shit's done. Uh, I got two I will briefly bring up. I don't know if you managed to see them. This is where it gets fun because we're going into some territory of pictures that you haven't seen. So uh, there's not going to be a whole lot of arguing. But 47 meters down, Uncaged and Crawl, both from 2019. I did see Crawl. Okay, Crawl I actually had a problem with. Now, some of you may know that I there's rumors I had a cult and, you know, some things were going on in Florida a couple years ago. But I did spend some time in Florida where no one on the set of Crawl spent any time at all. Because the movie was filmed in fucking Serbia and it looked, doesn't look like Florida. They make a joke about, uh, you know, infamous Pasco County where uh, I may or may not have had a cult at one point in time. And that's about as Florida as the movie goes to where they move into, what, like a three-story house with a giant crawl space. If you've been to Florida or you've lived in Florida... Yeah, it's not. It doesn't. This isn't right. Outside of that, you've got a pretty okay killer animal movie. Alligators are really badass for some reason in this. They can do a lot of things they can't do in real life. It's whatever. CGI is all right. It's a uh, animals run amuck movie. My big issues is it just it doesn't look like Florida. It doesn't feel like Florida. You put a couple people in Florida t-shirts and you called it that, and it runs more like a, an '80s late night B movie. It didn't really do a lot for me. Uh, spoilers. The dog doesn't die, and that really made me. By happy dog, do you mean Barry once... Pepper? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> what a like a character actor that this guy is. Uh, he he's just got such an unpleasant face. Just looks like some butter's been left on the table for I'm a while. I'm ugly Alex Winter. Like, you know, rewrap it. Yeah. <laughs> oh, ugly Alex Winter. That's even kind of sadder because he's not that great looking <laughs> in the first place. Well, I, I did see Crawl because. Uh... My special lady friend has a affinity there are people for in your life that love dumbass this. monster movies and killer animal movies and earthquake movies and all that shit. So I had to watch this one, and for the most part, I enjoyed it. I didn't have the problems that Hank had because I don't particularly give a shit about any of that stuff. I'm not from the area, so yeah, it doesn't matter I'm, to me. But I'm being much more shallow in my review of things. It's a plotless film. It's absolutely plotless, which is fine because it's all about just running away from alligators. And um, I will say this, though. There is no way Barry Pepper, uh, Barry, Pepper, Barry Pepper lives at the end of that film. With as much battle damage as he ended up with, it's like, he's not going to be alive. I don't care if the helicopter's there or not. He's dead. He's been eaten by an alligator twice, and he fucking drowned. And it's just, he keeps coming <laughs> He doesn't back. have a fucking like a- arm. He has a Timex battery. Yeah, I forgot about that. He actually cut, gets his arm eaten off and then just wraps it up on the stairs and Double keeps going. So there is a lot fun. of some unrealistic uh, expectations for the human body in this movie. It, it wasn't a bad ride, though. It, it, um, 
Alexandre Aja. I always say his first name wrong. The guy that did the Hills Have Eyes remake. Uh, he did the High ago. Tension or Switchblade Romance, whatever the fuck you want to call it. He did some of the bunch of movies of the years. I'm glad to see he's returning some, some nasty exploitation stuff, though. Yeah, I like his work. I really like High Tension. I, I like High um, Tension, the French culture violence. <laughs> I didn't really care for what the movie was about, but I liked how it was filmed and it was incredibly violent, and that's what attracted me. I like the French ultra-violent kind of wave that's been happening the last few years. Pictures like High Tension and Martyrs, and you know, Martyrs was remade and came over to the United States and was just absolutely you know handled poorly, but you can find that original movie. I think it's definitely something... That changes the game up a little bit. This was more of a, a you know consumer piece. This it's a American throwaway movie, totally. Movie I mean, it, it's there for a week for you to get your rocks off to watch on the FX network late at night. Yeah, and that was that's what really was my motivation of even mentioning it on this list because it made just about everybody else's 2019 list, and eh, it's not that bad. I mean, it's it's 90 minutes for you to sit through and you get to see some cool death. There is some really cool alligators eating people death scenes, and it pays off in the long run. 47 meters down uncaged i actually really really liked it's a different story i wish it hadn't been part of the 47 meters i saw the first one the first one wasn't horrible but this has a completely different feeling to it if it had just been called uncaged it might have had a better chance it's um a group of girls that are you know in mexico and their parents are archaeologists and they discover their parents an underwater cave they decide that they you know got a tip from one of the guys that works for the archaeologists to go skin diving in the cave well not skin diving they have tanks and they go uncaged diving in this cave where there are several sharks that have gotten stuck inside and turned into blind albino freak sharks so you've got a really cool horror aspect you've got a cool monster effect it's not just a shark they're blind freak sharks cast of characters isn't that bad everyone is underwater the entire movie but unlike you know the 47 meters down there's it's free you know you don't have that horrible anxiety of them being stuck in the cage which pays off because you have even worse anxiety of them being stuck in a dark cave and it just continues and flows pretty successfully had a really 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 high octane ending that was probably the most exciting part of the movie just didn't stop and then when it did it's an all right ride i mean it's completely popcorn it has no you know it's not some important amazing art film you're talking about for a hundred years but double feature with crawl hell yeah 47 meters down uncaged and crawl are great back to back and a lot of fun i mean it doesn't really make a list because again it's not really about anything some people go into a cave and there's a fucking there's sharks and they eat people because that's what happens sharks eat people <laughs> i didn't see it and the first one was enjoyable enough i guess i will have to watch this at some point because the aforementioned lady will force me to watch it and go, that was really good. I've got to buy that on DVD and we'll never watch it again. Like the time I accidentally mentioned how many Resident Evil movies are in the series and she had to buy them all at that very minute. Uh, let me tell you something. You remember when Biodome came in? Or oh, she yeah. ordered Biodome? <laughs> it's still in the fucking plastic. I'm so glad we have Biodome now. The same, like, day, probably, I, I mentioned, how many movies has Polly Shore been in? And she sat down and got all of them right then and there. A, a treat to the, the whole world. Your old lady is a treat to the old world. I'll give her that. She's adorable, but goddamn, her spending habits drive me fucking crazy. Do we need hey, a copy of Black Panther? Yet? It'll be online forever. Do we need, okay, I have a $5 copy of Black Panther now. Has she gotten you an air fryer yet? Oh, I, oh, I have an air fryer, my friend. 
I, I feel that that would have been a, a big purchase uh, at your household, an air fryer right off the bat. It's the shit. Buy an air fryer. Everyone is the best yeah. money you'll spend this year. Absolutely. If you take anything from the 2019 Best of Death by DVD episode, it's buy an air fryer for everything, man. Get one of the big ones, one of the big digital ones, and it will it'll change your world. Unlike 47 Meters Down and Crawl, which were somewhat unremarkable, but regardlessly entertaining. And that's about it. I mean, we did, we talked about Crawl, 47 Meters Down, and The Fanatic. So, I mean, so we get ready. ready to move on to the list. I guess we're we're good to go. All right, let's move on to the lists. Okay, so to get into our top five movies of 2019 list, I the disclaimer here is I didn't see everything. I saw a good chunk of movies, and these are the ones I think are the best. Something might come in later that I see from 2019, but these are the best movies that I saw this year, not just the best movies. To emphasize sorry, how much you didn't see, I picked five movies and you didn't see any of them. So I didn't see any of them. <laughs> we'll, we'll get to that point. I haven't even heard of them until you picked them. We'll yeah, me neither. Way. That's, uh, I'll tell that story when the time comes, but um, when we planned, well, fuck it, I'll just tell it now, I guess. Because um, it seems appropriate. When we came up with this idea and, and had the aspect, you gave me your list. And my first problem was, well, shit, three movies on your list are on my list. So I kind of just sat down and, you know, you can – there's thousands and thousands and thousands of just lists of 2019. But Wikipedia, I think, does it the best and releases country to country, release to release, literally everything. So I went through blindly and picked titles and companies and people that I've been interested in or that I like and respect and – just wanted to see what was going to happen, and I ended up watching like 25 movies and narrowed it down to um, you know a good solid five to I, not compete with yours because, again, as I've said previously, three of your picks I unarguably think are three of the greatest movies of 2019. So what I tried to do was at least give some other titles some, some growth. You know, If you're out there listening to this and you can take all these picks and watch these 10 movies and come back and tell us what you think, that'd be a lot of fun. We'd appreciate the feedback. What did you like the most out of 2019, you radio audience person? And the movies I am going to talk about, I think I've talked about a few of them, at least on the show before. Um, so, it, I mean, it'll be slightly different because now I've sat with them a little bit more and my list is rearranged and changed. I usually don't do crazy top 10 lists every year, but... Uh, just lately, I've been just kind of messing around with it just because <clears throat> there's a little bit of importance to what you choose in the order of your list and why it's the order of your list. So let's just get into it. And I will go with my number five, which was, as Hank respectfully calls him, the Eggman, um, Robert Eggers. I am Morris. I disagree with that being your fifth. Because there's a movie on your list that I fucking do not like at all that should have been number five. The Lighthouse, um, okay, so my list is obviously different from yours, but, uh, yeah, I guess I'll just go ahead and say it because it's what I feel. I think The Lighthouse was probably the best movie of the year for me. I had the most fun, and that's personal, though. I had the most fun watching The Lighthouse. I don't know what you found fun about The Lighthouse. Uh, I, I, I just love... Nothing. I love when there's, when, you know, I keep referencing it. I love the big kahuna, man. I love when there's just like nothing going on in one setting and people being people. And that's what the lighthouse is. It's just, because with the witch, you have all these questions and people are like, well, was there really a witch? Yes, there really was a witch. It, it's a supernatural horror story. 
The lighthouse was a completely different approach because it's people. The insanity, the scary, the the fear, the horror aspect is completely driven by people. And by the end of the movie, you're just in such an utter state of confusion as to what's going on. I, I just thought it was delightful. I love having my senses taken away from me and just being abused a little bit. I, I feel like I was abused by the end of The Lighthouse, and it really was pivotal in watching it. I wish I could have seen this on a big screen and with real sound. I watched this at home, unfortunately, and, man, you had you had to have a great experience at least seeing it, you know, on on, on the real screen. It was all right. I don't think that increased my levels of liking any more than I do now. Oh, wow. I, th- I uh, figured there, it would have. Like, well, I mean, all, seeing all films on a big screen is somewhat important, but the reason it's number five on my list is something that you kind of seem to enjoy about it. I disliked about the film is engagement. And it was very hard for me to engage with these characters, this plot, any of really what's going on. And again, it's my top five favorite movie of the year. I'm not shitting on this movie at all. Can you really engage with the, the, the cast of the witch? I mean, they're puritanical Christians that have been pushed out of their environment or, it's not even so much the of, cast. I was intrigued by what Well, I mean, was I don't happening. mean the cast. I mean just the, the characters, the people involved, because I don't really think with the witch you can, you know, see eye to eye with these people, especially the, the father's judgment and his behavior and then the mother and how she treats her daughter and just the whole inner workings of the family, I think, are generally disagreeable. But, you know, with the lighthouse. But that's, that's something. And in the lighthouse, it was more about these two men and the isolation of them being off and silent. And I'm not saying that's a bad thing. What I'm saying is where the film ultimately goes, the, the plot devices that it's using, it I just beans. didn't find it that interesting because it just did not go particularly anywhere. I mean, I get the, the ideas behind it, which is a lot about um, how I use the term toxic masculinity. Um, to describe some of the characters. A lot of it has to do with that, about well, man's lot, uh, search for God, um, different idea, guilt. Um, I mean, there's there's different a lot ideas. of different themes, though. I mean, you have you have a lot of different themes at play here, though, uh, besides that. I mean, there's obvious homoerotic tensions between the two, the, the lack of identities between the two. There's, there's a whole environment and pretty much atmosphere that is laid down with the lack of um, William Pattinson's agreeability because you're, you're led to think that Willem Dafoe is this big, you know, grisly bastard. And for all intents and purposes, yeah, he is. But as the story progresses, which they're there, they're on this, this rock, as they keep calling it, for 14 days, two weeks. And you get, what, three days? You're, you're shown their insanity through the last, really, few days of what's going on. And progressively, I feel it's Robert Pattinson's characters, uh, or whomever he truly is, because he has several different identities, his lack of honesty even in such a, a weird place where you didn't need to be honest, his lack of self, his lack of being is what really brought the intriguement into me. And then, you know, the, the pivotal, spill your beans! Why'd you have to go to spill your beans? The whole point is, you know, exposing who your true self is or what you truly are, and sometimes it's a monster. Sometimes you're absolutely abhorrent and you didn't need to uh, expose what that is. So I love the transition between who is evil, what's going on. You've got a lot of disbelief in reality that you don't quite know wh- whose eyes you're seeing this through or what is going on you know Willem Dafoe will be doing something and then a scene later say he didn't do it and there's just it's such a chaotic war almost visually that you're trying to abstain, uh, understand this just absolute absurdity and it, it again we've used the term a lot it's like a ballet it's like a 
an opera that it keeps peaking and peaking and peaking until it finally hits its final act. And it's just this insane, uh, decadent display of people going insane. And I, I truly, I mean, both performances, you can look in Willem Dafoe's eyes and see he's not Willem Dafoe. He's become this this turpentine drinking sea shanty son of a bitch, and it's just I loved it. Uh, see, I have no problem with any of the technical aspects of it, with the acting. I just have problems of it, just, like because all these things you're saying they are there. There are aspects to the movie, but there was no exterior sort of plot for me to get my like get a grip around all these just kind of interpersonal issues. Like what you're describing to me is something like Glenn Gary, Glenn Ross, which I mean, granted it's multiple characters, not just two characters, but that's a play where there's a lot of different things going on. Who's trying to fuck who over who's robbed the office, all these different things and all these very interesting characters and how they interact and the lighthouse. I just didn't care about these two characters interacting. Yes, it was interesting to watch them interact, but it's just like, okay, but like in Glenn Gary, Glenn Ross, there's the, the plot of the, of the office being robbed. There's some sort of framework around it, and there's just not enough framework in the lighthouse for me. It just didn't seem to go anywhere other than a lot of kind of philosophic issues at the end of the day, which is okay, but it's just like, I need a little bit more, uh, no, again, I need a little bit more expo- um, exploitation. I need something. I need something to like get a grip on. I think it's something not like there. the office being robbed is involved with um, the lighthouse because you've got you know who he is. You've got these multiple stories, and it first begins when the logs wash up on shore, and he sees them, and you've got this you know Fellini dreamlike kind of thing going on. See, I didn't care though who he was. That's that, that's my point. I just didn't care. Like that seems to be the whole plot of the movie is. Who is Robert Pattinson? Why is he here? And why is he acting this way? And when I find out, that answer wasn't satisfactory at all. It was just like, all right. Well, not specifically who is he. It's who are you? Who are any of us? What are you keeping inside? I think, you know, visually that was supposed to be interpreted on a more artistic fantasy level. You know, like I I just referenced, you know, the dreamlike aspects of Fellini and shit like that. That I think that was more of an artist fluffy thing you know it's not a linear this is this this is that boom 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 who robbed the office and these people go home this is what their reality is it's it's you know looking into this shrewd brutal world of what these guys are doing and you know you see somebody like Willem Dafoe's character who's done this for for many 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 years and is accustomed to it and enjoys pretty much what he does and then you've got the the newbie the new wiki that's coming in and these these two clashing not so much where they come from or who they are or what they've done beforehand, but how they're handling the situation they're in at the moment they're in. And the things that you keep saying are pluses are negatives to me on a lot of different fronts is mostly because as, as far as art films go, which is what this most definitely is, the level of engagement you're going to have with an audience is going to be incredibly limited. And I don't say you don't have, you have to completely sell out your ideas and all this other stuff, but, Someone like a George Romero, if we're going to use him as a reference here, is able to speak about issues like this, but also have uh, a much more like, I don't know, the best way to put it other than like almost a financial way of getting people to see the movie. Some level of engagement with the audience. You wouldn't get all these social issues without the zombies. And I need I need my zombies. I need something to get me to interact with these characters other than just to watch them in this kind of very artistic environment, which 
granted, it is beautiful, but at the same time, it's just like it's not doing much for me. Well, I think that's the big difference, though, is something like uh, a George Romero film, though it does have a political nature, most certainly, is made to be seen. I don't think the Eggman gave a shit at this point. Well, see, that's a problem for me. Because I, I think that's necessary to filmmaking. I think the I certain think financial too, aspects of think, it are important as well. I think it is too, but I think this is a, a different type of artist that knew what he wanted to make. And uh, you know, he mentions a lot of what he wanted to do in the commentary for The Witch. If you can go back and track that down and listen to it, he pretty much paints how he's going to make this movie. And I think for him, you know, he, he put this out knowing the people that would want to see it were going to see it, and that was the audience he was reaching for. And I mentioned with The Fanatic that that made about $3,000. This is what I was talking about. This made about 8000 Now, I could be really, really wrong. It was wrong. like $8 million. Okay, I knew it was an eight, but still comparably. I, and I said that with The Fanatic. I don't know if it was a million or a thousand. I think The Fanatic made $3,000. It made, yeah, it ended up making like $300,000 or something, ultimately at the box office or something, I think. But when you look at a movie like this and you see it made $8 million, that's... Uh, still not really good and that's where well, you're coming from and i completely understand it and i appreciate your that's a little bit of my point though is it, it's kind of the, the tree falling in the woods scenario if you make a movie and no one comes what was the point and that's a level of art that is also important and engagement with your audience but and if you're just putting it out there it's so esoteric that only a few people get it are you really doing anything to further your art other than just wallowing in your own self-crapulence but looking at uh, you know my direction of he put this out you know knowing that people were going to find it you know the people his audience were going to find it you traveled for this you went out of your way to find this so I think there is some accuracy um, with that because he you know you know what your direction is you know the people that are going to want to see it so you put it out pretty much for them and this was an art house movie and like midsummer that toured pretty much like Ari went to New York and he did Q and A's and he showed the uncut version and he took it around to draft houses and places like that. And he, he showed the movie outside of film festivals. And I think the lighthouse definitely could have used something like that, at least get the Eggman to travel with it, sit down, talk to people, answer questions, and then it might help uh, show it to new lights. But you know, a lot of people had complaints with the witch. A lot of people didn't get the witch and they didn't care for it whatsoever. This is just, uh, all you're going to hear now coming into 2020 is people complaining about the Eggman and, and his style of work. And I, f- frankly, but the I witch had a hook like to it. And that's kind of my point. The the hook was the witch and the lighthouse doesn't really have a hook other than go watch Willem Dafoe act his ass off, which is a, a good hook for a certain piece of the population. But you also need something there to like generate a little bit more of just a, a little bit more of a wider audience and not just basically jerk yourself off, which is what this ultimately is, is a little bit of a jerk off piece. Again, I didn't hate it. It's my number five movie of the fucking year. It's just for the amount of critics who've had this at number one, I just, I don't see it like they see it. I think it was a pretty good movie, but it's just ultimately alienating to a large percentage of the population, including me to a certain extent. I, I felt alienated the entire movie. Well, to be fair, too, completely, I think this is coming down boldly to a matter of taste that, you know, I obviously like a different defining style than you do, and I took something uh, different than you did. So that is one of the big reasons why this is pushed toward the top of, of a list for me, because even this discourse you and I have had, there's a lot of different thoughts and emotion that an audience member, somebody listening to the show, not just watching The Lighthouse, is able to take away and make their own valid opinion with. So we both took a lot of good from this. I I honestly don't have 
I don't really think I have a complaint. I don't really think I have anything that I didn't like with, um, uh, you know what? Okay, I do. And it's a, it's a petty, stupid complaint. I don't like the fact that they use stock footage. That's literally the one thing that bothered me, <laughs> that they used some stock footage of waves crashing, and that's whatever, that's fine. But with how uh, this movie was shot and, and everything that was involved with it, I don't, it, you just cheapened it a little bit. You go out of your way, you build a fucking lighthouse. That was constructed for the film. They build this pretty much functioning lighthouse. I think it worked for like 25 miles. So that's impressive. They get this island. They get these amazing actors. They're shooting on 16 millimeter black and white. You know, they're shooting on old school cameras. The way this movie was framed and shot actually was a really weird style that was only used from like the, the mid to late twenties into the, the mid to late thirties and was kind of abandoned by Hollywood. So he went out of his way to shoot this, really old, old school style, and then you just clip some stuff in. That annoyed me. That's my big, that's my only annoyance with uh, The Lighthouse. Cheap. Well, it kind of follows along my same thing, is if you're going to go this far on this idea and concept, that tells me you're more interested in your concept than you are uh, of the story you were trying to tell. And that's what I think alienated me the most, is just... I get what world you're trying to create, but is this helping the story you're trying to tell? And I don't think you had much of a story to tell, which is fine. Not all movies have to, but again, that's why it's just not at my number one. It's just, it was, I felt alienated by it. So it goes to number five for me. Well, my list definitely isn't uh, an organized, well-numbered list, but I will put the lighthouse um, toward the top, definitely toward the top on mine. But I will try. Let's let's go. Uh, I'll I'll pick my number five. The uh, I wouldn't say disliked, but 2019 movie called Braid. I don't believe you saw it. I did not see. I haven't seen any of these, dude. It's by a female director named Mitzi Perone, and it essentially is about um, not growing up. Uh, there's a lot of okay. Just to kind of start where we're going into this, you see this a lot of times. Movies will be described as Lynchian. I hate it. I, I hate that terminology, and I think it is a cover-up of, you know, David Lynch is a very certain thing, and his way of telling stories might not always be linear, and it might not always have a definitive ending that you want, but it is certainly his style. And when you apply that as a title or, you know, an adjective to get you interested in another movie, it, it just gives me this idea that you're copping out. That, okay, this is going to be really Lynchian, so it's going to be weird and disassociative, and that's the way you're describing it instead of giving it, you know, its own terms. And this movie really does fulfill that style. And there's a lot of movies that you can say are Lynchian, that they're kind of nonsensical. Uh, you can understand what's going on, but there's not a lot of reason for it. And I don't, I don't think it's a positive thing. I don't think that's a positive way to describe a movie. And, again, like this made a top five list, so I don't dislike it. But I'm not incredibly fond of it. So you've got... These two women who are, you know, young girls, they're in their 20s, they are in a rough row in life, and they have a mentally deranged friend who they know they can play this game with, and it's house. They play house, and the movie is about these three people connecting and playing house with one common goal of getting money and getting out of the bad situation they're in. It spirals and turns into an absolute insane, drug-fueled, lynchian a nonsensical dream of what is going on, where does time begin, where does time end, and you've got these characters changing, uh, you know, as any story from who they are at the beginning to who they are at the end. But 
unfortunately, despite an amazing amount of visuals, a completely insane way that this movie was funded, great direction, final cut with the director on their very first feature film, but they did self-produce, so it's not completely unheard of these days. Uh, written and directed, final cut. It just didn't... Having all this power, having all this ability, being able to do all these things on your own is really great. When you're an independent filmmaker or film anybody, when you're an artist, you want to have say in everything you do. You don't want anybody to come in and fuck things up and touch things and take it away from you. But sometimes it's a little bit helpful to have an editor. Sometimes it's, it's, it's necessary to have somebody that doesn't know how much work you put into it, how much work this crane shot was or how many hours you put into something. Being able to have an outsider come in and sit down and go, well, it needs to be cut. It's helpful because things need to be cut. A lot of ideas... We'll be talking about that here in a little bit, too, <laughs> so keep going. Nick. A lot of ideas are good ideas, but it's just the manner in which you show these ideas to people. And in this sense, you've got a very long, sprawled out, uh, literally like Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas-style drug-fueled story. And that is a big part of the plot is the drugs they're using. And you've blended too much of all these walls together that you... You really can't find your way out of the rabbit hole when you're watching Braid, and that makes it so disassociative and so complex that it begins to cause problems because you can't relate to any of the characters. Midway through the movie, you stop caring and trying for anybody because there just is nothing that you can firmly grasp onto. Uh, all the performances are great. The movie looks really good, and in a compliment, it does have a Lynchian style. It does have a lot of flair. It has a lot of neon. It's got a lot of great colors, and it works. It really works for what it tries to show, and to me in the long run, what it tried to show is, I don't know, growing up, changing, um, or, or the lack thereof, or people's uh, inability to change, despite saying that they have or working to change. It's got a lot of questions, a lot of themes that, I think really apply to people around 25 to 30 years old as your life begins to really change in the direction and you begin wondering and questioning what is happening or, you know, what you're going to do in the next 10 years. But it just kind of fell short. Uh, really just bizarre visuals. There's a, a fun display of violence. It's not, you know, incredibly intense or graphic, but there's some fun violence speckled throughout the movie. All in all, it's not a bad for a directorial debut. I really strongly feel it should have been edited by somebody else i really really think that the, the director should have stepped aside and allowed at least somebody you know you can use final cut you can do whatever the hell you want to when you do it your way when you produce your own movie and what i mentioned it being somewhat fascinating i mean the director pretty much created her own uh, cryptocurrency to fund this movie so you could buy braid coins and you would get a percentage back when the movie sold, which it did. It's on on demand. Um, you can find it on Tubi and I think Amazon Prime and a couple other places it's streaming. It worked really, really well for what she was trying to do. But when you have all that power, when you have all that control, and you're proud of it, I mean, that's a big thing. You're proud of what you've done, which you should never not be. You should always be you know, very proud of your work and what you're, you're working on. But when you have all that power and all that control, sometimes it just makes things a little hard. You know, your final product is directly what you wanted it to be but sometimes there is just uh, there's just un I don't, I don't know how to word it without being a complete dick but there's just shit that you think looks good and it doesn't you need to have an outsider look at other things and i mean it's even like peer editing when it comes down to writing or with painting i think it's a bit more private you tend to not show people but most of the arts uh, tends to be a communal sort of thing of at least allowing other people to have insight to it. And when you disallow that insight, you get a very hallucinatory, nonsensical final product. And again, 
It's a top five. This is probably my my number five braid. It's what it is. I think it really uh, deserves evaluation. I think people need to sit down and watch it, but at the same time, I think it's going to raise more questions of what the fuck was that instead of, oh, I get it. So, braid. 2019. I don't know if that makes you want to see it or, or what, but I, I, you know, being honest. You, oh, what I find interesting is you just gave basically the same review to Bray that I gave to the lighthouse. Cause I think it's kind of one of the same issues we're having with separate movies. So I just find that interesting. It All definitely right. is. I think the interpretation of art too, because I've read and seen a lot of reviews and I've, I've listened to the director talk about this and, that's where I've learned most of my information is from the director and what she did to get this made. And I really respect it, but that doesn't always make the review any better. You know, just because I know how things were done, just because I know how she shot this and all the hardships that were gone through to make the movie doesn't mean the overall effect is going to be any different for me. No one who sees your movie will ever know any of those things and it will never matter to any of them. You know, I know, and I completely get that, but sometimes you need to be able to slim things down. Sometimes you just need to have an outsider work with you to, and that's really, I mean, editing is an art of itself that really, I mean, I think people look that over and they don't think of how essential it is to have a good editor or somebody that knows that art and knows what they're doing because that it's like, fucking you know like making chain skull sculptures one wrong cut and you screwed everything up especially somebody that has to work with film that 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 itself is being a, a, an actual film editor is an insane art that is being lost upon on this world and the people that can do it need to be protected at all cost they are our sweethearts we need to keep the people that know how to edit film well speaking of editing we're gonna go on to my number four movie which uh, is a movie we've talked about on the show before. My number four was Midsommar, Midsummer, however you want to call it, by uh, Ari Aster, his follow-up to Hereditary. And um, I thoroughly enjoyed this film. Um, as Hank was saying with his last review, I think it could have benefited from, with a little bit of slicker editing. Um, I Which think is the story funny because they were most people was, completely what? disagree. Well, I think it's funny you say that because most people completely disagree and feel that the um, – the director's cut the four hour you know big dick is is far superior well i just can't, i can't go it. with that because the one thing i do like about film and movies is a certain amount of pulling back and like even roger corman back in the day um he didn't want to ship more than two film cans so you have to keep it to like i think specifically 82 minutes because if you have that extra eight minutes i'm gonna have to ship a different film can and i don't want to pay for shipping that helped a lot of movies at the time because you had to get slicker and cleaner with what story you're trying to tell. And in Midsommar, I think it's a, a it is an engaging story. I find it interesting. I find the visuals to be incredibly beautiful. Like the acting was all really good. The um, the the mood, the tone of it was all done very well. I think where Ari Aster slipped up as a sophomore director um, is he let some things that he found interesting play out more than what the story really needed as you're trying to tell the story because like the things he was editing out or didn't edit out was some of the ceremony stuff i know that's very important to the story but at the Uh, same time it's funny you bring that up too because that uh, there's uh, from what we see in the movie half the ceremony is missing that most of like there's there's multiple other days pretty much and uh spoilers coming up here after the entire cast except one person that you're introduced to after all the americans die 
there's like five days left in the movie and all of that was shot that there are other rituals there are other ceremonies there's a whole from what it sounds like to me and I you know I haven't seen the the director's cut is that it's a completely different movie uh, for all intents and purposes because you add all of this other stuff to it you're adding a completely different layer that obviously was omitted and uh, none of us are going to have any understanding what? of and there's already a problem with that for me because I still have questions about where half the characters disappear to throughout the movie. There's a lot of things that just weren't even shot, it seems like, for more story. So what you're pretty much Well, that's saying, where I think the editing yeah. should come in. And what I mean by that is when I say he was fascinated by ceremony, I don't want to leave any of these ceremonies out. But all you could do is tighten up a lot of that stuff because a lot of it's fascinated in the the pageantry of the ceremony. So he would let it play out. He would let scenes play out for like five solid minutes that are just like some of the ceremony playing out. And while I understand that, what? Go ahead. No, I mean, well, while all these things are playing out and these ceremonies are happening, something that would have been really key and had uh, you know helped this be a little bit more fluent would have been maybe telling a bit more story while these things are happening. It's not unheard of for two things to happen at once. I mean, you could even cut away or add cutaways to accentuate the story and what's happening with these characters. And it's just, it's not that it's vague or ambiguous. It's just almost, and I'm sure I'll eat shit for saying this, but a little sloppy. It just seems like it's uh, looking at um, hereditary compared to the editing with Midsummer. It just seems like he's, he's a little lazier work that he just like, and it's what you said he's fascinated with. A certain People aspect of the story. At this point in history, I have a lot slicker knowledge of editing, and they can really gather information faster than they used to be able to with with how ed- things are like speedily edited now. I'm not saying you have to edit it. Like it's a fl- like requiem for a dream or anything. I'm just saying that people can gather this information. I understand some of that information you were leaving in for tonal purposes of making it feel ominous, making this whole ceremony seem like it's been going on for thousands of years. Look at these intricate intricate details. That's all well and good, but you're making a four hour movie about this, and you like you you do still have to pay attention to some rules of cinema of it's going to be hard for anybody to sit through as much of this as there is. I know TV has changed and the way people binge watch things have changed, but at the same time you're theatrically releasing this and you need to just tighten things up a little bit. You left out a lot of chunks of story because it was already going on too long. So you do, I'll just hack this scene out, but I'll let this piece of the ceremony play out for five solid minutes. It's like, okay, I get it, but you can, you can tighten this up. If you work with your music a little bit more, he did manage to make daytime horror scary again. He did manage though with his visuals to really approximate what it is like to trip on mushrooms, which I found amazing more than anything. It's like, Jesus, this is incredibly accurate. And the story he told overall, I thought was incredibly interesting and important about basically empathy. This person looking for empathy, her whole life being felt like she's never mattered and find, find people to where, she feels like she matters and what family truthfully is because even her own blood family was alienating to her. Uh, I find that story incredibly interesting, engaging, but it's just the way it plays out is just a little bit slow. Cause even the, the final theatrical cut was two and a half hours long. And I sat in the theater with this couple who would not shut the fuck up. And in all the downtime, would just discuss What's everything going that was going on? on very loudly in the theater. And there was so much downtime. They talked nonstop throughout the and entire so film. Your experience was pretty much fucking ruined. Oh, yeah. That, that certainly didn't help. But there was so much of that 
they had the opportunity to talk. There wasn't enough going on in the film to keep them shut the fuck up. And that is a problem with your film. If it's playing out with all this silence that albeit trying to create a certain amount of atmosphere and tone, you can still do that with a little bit tighter editing, I think. Uh, I mean, uh, just continuing talking about the, uh, the editing process, there are a lot of ingenious and beautiful things that can be credited to this movie. Like, you know, I didn't uh, evaluate this on the first watch, but, you know, I, I thought I saw a lot of things in the background that I wasn't sure I saw. When you go back and you look at it, there's a lot of subliminal stuff and a lot of really unique things that, are, you know, he, and it's like, I, I know I'm going to eat shit for it. I feel it's a bit sloppy editing with his pacing and his time and uh, what he decided to fully use and, and, and put in this picture. But at the same time, you know, it's really intricate. It's really beautiful. It's uh, above par. It's definitely not something you're going to see averagely in the way this movie was shot and filmed and handled. You know, nothing about it is lazy. So, you know, you got two, you know, spectrums to looking at, at things here that, yes, uh, what we have is an absolutely amazing art piece. But, you know, being critical and attempting to be constructive at the same time, it's not a matter of it being too long because you can run something fucking five hours and it'd still be okay. Uh, case in example, The Godfather. Maybe not The Godfather 3, but the first movie is pretty fluent in what is told. And despite it being – There's enough going on in that is my point. Yes, there's, yeah. there's a lot of intricate story things and plot details going on in something that – I mean, very it's long movies, even like something like JFK is like that. But this is just—it's a lot of silence playing out for time. It's an abnormally long movie, but it, it shows everything that needs to be shown. And yeah, you know, you can d debate a lot of things might have needed to have been cut from The Godfather. Or the movie could have been told in a different fashion, but that's not you know what I'm trying to reference and and my point behind all of it. It's just showing what needs to be seen, and, and a lot of the stuff that needed to be seen with Midsummer just doesn't show up. I mean, there are characters that we know what happens to. We can figure out what happens to them, but when you just omit them almost, uh, what was the point of even having some of these, these things? Well, we know movie? something bad has happened to them. We, as a horror audience, we know we were waiting for you to explain what has happened to them, and you didn't get to that till the last, like, 30 minutes of explaining what, like, I know they're being killed. Let's get to – no, we're just going to still leave it somewhat ambiguous. It's like, well, this is not necessary it's particularly. Not like we need to get to it in you know, a gritty put them on the hooks, get the chainsaws revving, but give me some notion of what's happening when you just completely get rid of a character. Pump up that tension a little bit more. Yeah, you show me somebody has their face cut off. Why even bother showing me that then if you're not going to show me their face being cut off? I mean there's just a little – tuning in, in some of these things. And again, like I have no complaints with Midsummer because I think it was one of the best movies. Oh, it's a year. tremendous movie. Yeah, I, I absolutely love it. I think Ari is capable of, of much better work. I think his first production is much better work and is a, a much sturdier film. But, you know, I mean, just again, I, I said it a few moments ago, trying to be constructive and at the same time review something is really difficult because I think people – tend to just get offended when you say anything that doesn't agree with them. So, you know, you take this and it seems like we're picking this apart and we're, uh, you know, dumping on Midsummer a little bit. By no means necessary because what was shown and what is in the movies is absolutely insane. It's why it's number four is my point with all of this. It's like I really enjoyed this film, but the reason it's not number two or number one is because of these aspects. That's what all this criticism is, is about. What kept it from being one of the top, absolute top films of the of the year. It's still in the top five. It's just not the absolute top. We'll get to the absolute top and why they're there though. 
my enjoyment uh, definitely was, I think, a big thing for being in theaters. Like, I had a lot of fun seeing this movie in theaters, and then you come home and you watch it again, and there's just something from the experience missing, that this is something that really deserved to have been seen uh, monumentally on a massive screen with really great sound design, and when you come home, it's just not the same. And that that's nitpicking, but there is sort of a problem with that because you want to, again, as we've discussed, enjoy what you're doing. You really want to have fun with the art that you're exploring and be able to get into it at all different levels. And when you start, you know, finding yourself reaching for the phone or, you know, getting bored, it's it had its effect and it kept you kind of at theaters because you're at a theater. It kept you spellbound in the theater. Yeah, when you're at home, there's something missing. The thudding sound design, the intensity of the the mushroom experience and the visuals throughout the movie. It, it, again, it's a home theater sort of thing, so it's nitpicking, but it just doesn't play off as well. It is a good, you know, example of, I think, the modern nouveau style that's starting to happen that guys like like Ari, Ari Aster and the Eggman are really breaking with what, you know, what the rules are, what you can do, how you can do things. I think these guys are really toying with film and taking it to a new direction. So, I mean, I want more. I definitely, I, if he puts out an eight hour movie about farts, I'm going to check it out. You know, I don't care what the subject matter is. I'm interested in these guys. I think what Ari Aster has done really well, especially for the horror genre is bring a certain amount of seriousness and hardcore human emotion to otherwise ridiculous concepts because just think about hereditary and think about midsummer of how much it has these movies have to do with pain and grief and deep emotional philosophic things to pick apart um and it's not just scary people in a house scared by scary ghosts in the house like it's returning we're taking it much deeper than that we're taking it right down to their like their base humanity core of like i am a damaged person before i even got into this horrific element and now you're going to see me be damaged in this as well so i I will tell that's what i I think i'm enjoying most about ari aster is just to bring all that fucking emotion to horror which i think is amazing I mean, taking us directly back to the the fanatic, that's something that I thought was really, really compelling with the movie is that you told a story, a horror story using just people and emotions. And again, with The Lighthouse, you told a horror story using just people and emotions that sometimes Michael Myers is really relevant and a masked killer or whatever is really important. But sometimes the the fear inside of men's hearts is just as scary. And that's something that really, you know, plays off and really, really works with Midsummer is the absolute horror isn't the cult. It isn't these deaths. It isn't what's happening. It's the way people are reacting to it. It's the way the, the, the Westerners are dealing with this problem and or not dealing with this problem and all, all problems. You know, the movie begins with somebody refusing to break up with their girlfriend because of trauma and being dishonest and then slowly, you know, just expounds on that and becomes, you know, bigger and bigger layers of people avoiding and evading problems. And for people who can't see the difference between what I liked about Midsummer opposed to the lighthouse when they seem to be very much about uh, the interpersonal, emotional relationships that people have. And I would have to say to that Midsummer has a crushed head with a mallet. That's the hook. There's a hook here. There's something for me other than just these characters to 
experience and explore as opposed to just the characters. With the lighthouse, Although Fish Pussy and the Lighthouse, I guess, is something. Well, I was going to say there's a lot of references in the Lighthouse to very beautiful classical art pieces I thought you would at least enjoy. You know, the end of the movie, you've got a lot of uh, Greek represent. I mean, everything is majorly uh, it's sea Oh, it's all there, but it's just so deep and thick. I, the average person in America watching this film is going to just go, what the fuck and what was everybody talking about? And the answer is well, most of the critics you heard were nerds. And that's the difference. <laughs> They're just dull nerds and they love this kind of stuff. Yeah, I, I'm really passionate about it. But I'm also thinking about them beans all the time. So that's prob- probably part of my problem. All right, Hank, on to your... Next thing I've never heard of. Moving on to my next one, I, Alexander Nash, has never heard of. This one, you, the audience, should be able to find for free if you pay for Shudder. So I guess not for free. By Tillman Singer, written by Tillman Singer, Lose, from 2019. Now, a lot of these movies were shot in 2018, but they all got released or, uh, you know, shown at the Toronto International Film Festival and things like that. I think Braid was Toronto International Film Festival in uh, 2018, and then all of these got 2019 releases. This is a possession story, I guess an update on possession stories. A young girl, a young, um, I think it's they're from Argentina initially, she conjures a demon as a youth at a, uh, a Catholic school, and years later it finds her, and that's pretty much what's happening. This girl's been found by this demon. It's a love story. I think that's the most intriguing thing and what caught me with this and why I got interested in it is you look up what it's about, then you start watching the movie and this happens a lot. And in the modern era of streaming, you, you read all these synopsises and this is what the movie's about and, and this is going to be so good. And you watch it and it's like, well, God, they took like the most bland part or, you know, just something random from uh, the, the story of the movie. And they made this write up about it. And it's absolutely not what happens with lose. You have, a true love story, but it's unwarranted, and it's something in this culture that uh, isn't addressed or talked about enough. And you know, taking us back to the Joker, you may feel a certain way that doesn't mean it's right. You may think a certain thing that doesn't mean it's right. Just because you harbor emotion or you harbor a thought doesn't mean it's warranted to other people. So this demon is in love with this girl. This girl does not want this demon to be in love with her. The movie begins with her going to a police station, and the movie follows sort of like a play and uh you know you brought up glengarry glen ross it has a, a similar like the, the the very beginning not the very beginning most of glengarry glen ross is the chinese restaurant you've got this one setting and you've got this discourse between these characters and you've got the police station in this and the demon can you know move frames move bodies move shapes so the cast of characters slowly gets under this demon spell while you've got a psychiatrist cop that has put Luz into um, like a hypnotic thing to recant how this demon came back. So the movie is literally being told from inside of a car, but somebody's sitting stationary in a chair imagining that they're inside of a car. So you've got a heavy play concept here, and it's awkward. It has a really, really awkward feeling when you're watching it. It sounds awkward. Well, it, I mean, it really feels like you're watching somebody sitting in a chair, and Essentially, that is what you're watching, and it's shot well, it looks well. My biggest complaint issue is that in post, instead of doing color correction or giving the movie a tone, they decided to add this goddamn filter that makes it look like cigarette burns are just all over the movie. You know, like when you're 
not an actual cigarette burn, but when you're cutting film, there's usually a little ring that will show up in the corner, and that's a cigarette burn. And it, you know, you watch old Grindhouse movies, you you get it, you get a feel to it, you know that it's an older movie, but this was completely unnecessary, and you just, you can't help but wonder, like, is this just an Adobe filter? Why did you take away from, you know, what was going on? Because it, it's enchanting enough if you're willing to get into what's going on, and it's it's just a very dense love story about not necessarily acceptance, but accepting things into your life or being able to allow things into your life, whether you like them or not. Like the famous Bruce Lee quote, be like water, be uh, constantly flowing and adjusting. Some people are incapable of doing that. It runs at 70 minutes. It is in German, which takes a lot of people back because they don't like reading subtitles. And I'm pretty convinced people that don't like subtitles just can't read very well. It's intriguing. It looks well. I think, again, I mentioned kind of this nouveau style that is starting to come to horror and you know not necessarily just horror but maybe more esoteric styles of film and this is certainly one of them i mean it's very intriguing it's got a it's got its own look it's got its own taste to it i wasn't incredibly fond of it i i didn't have any problems with the story or plot but it was just visually something that I don't know, by the end of the movie, uh, kind of like your complaint with The Lighthouse, did any of it really matter? I mean, what was what was the point of showing me all of these things for it to... And it's not like it doesn't go anywhere, and it pretty much goes in any direction that you can imagine unwarranted love to go into. It's not very happy. It, I don't know, it's just, it, it feels like it wasn't finished. It feels like it's lacking uh, balls. And I hate saying it in, in that, you know, uh, manner because it makes it insulting almost, but it just, it's, it's got some strength problems. It's really needs, it doesn't have charisma. It needed a little bit more charisma, but it is on shutter, uh, right now. I think it came with the January update. So find it, review it for yourself, check it out. I enjoyed it for what it was, but at the same time, I didn't really care for it. Weird how I review <laughs> You're movies. You're such a weird fucking film critic. I am. Like, I, I watch it's so just bizarre. It's like, I really enjoyed it. It's on my top five of the year, but I didn't really enjoy it that much. Oh, for me, I think one of the things is you look at a piece of art and you see how somebody constructed it, and you know I can have appreciation for it, and I get what they were trying to do. And I think most people, when they watch this movie, are going to get it, and they're going to understand what he was trying to do, but maybe I just know more than I should, and as I'm watching it and going through it, it just seemed like... Things that were really necessary were left out, and it was, again, one of those, it's Lynchian. It's supposed to be mysterious. But when David Lynch does it, the things that are mysterious and confuse you have a point. You're just, like, throwing random shit in here to confuse me and to make it disorienting, and that's not Lynchian. That's just a lack of storytelling. Which seems to be a problem with a, a good handful of movies at this point is just really solid storytelling and trying to fall back more on being a visualist than being a storyteller. Cause ultimately what this movies are is you're telling stories. This is myth. Uh, this, these are our myths at this point. I mean, if you get into Freddy Krueger, he's like any childhood stories, the devil for some people, he's all these different things. It's just our version of these classic campfire tales retold just in our own little shaped worlds. And I think a lot of people just get lost on that visual representation as opposed to actually trying to tell a story about something or someone or an issue. I think it's Um, two types of art competing though. I mean, you, you, as a filmmaker, you want to tell a story, you want to 
allow people to see what you're trying to do, but at the same time, you want it to look good. You know, you want to present a really good looking piece of art to people. And both of those things are like a dragon, you know, chasing its own tail. You don't know what to do. Do I make it look really cool or do I make it make a lot of sense? Going back to Braid, the movie makes sense. The movie has a beginning, middle and ending and all of it's there, but you chose art over coherency, which is how I personally choose to live my life, art over coherency. But it doesn't always play off for your benefit is the problem. Yeah, I mean, and that is kind of the game here on filmmaking is ultimately what you were trying to do as an artist is you're trying to communicate with people. And if you're not communicating with people and or you're just communicating with certain people, communicating with just certain people, it's okay. But really, I mean, don't you want to your communication to go out to more people. Don't you want to touch more people? It's a scene in John Favreau's chef. It's just a really good scene of him explaining why he's a chef. And he just explains, I want to touch people. I want to make people feel good. I want to communicate with people. And that's ultimately what you're trying to do. And if you get lost in concepts or visuals that aren't communicating things to people, then really what are you doing other than just, you know, vomiting up your own, issues of yourself and your own mental hangups and it but does that matter own. other than to yourself i mean these are all just there's no answer to these questions they're just questions to throw out into the abyss i mean with that interpretation too though i mean that is its own form of art somebody that we've been really critical about on death by dvd in the 10 years we've been doing this lucifer valentine we don't particularly have anything nice to say about the guy, but he is out there working and he is out there doing things his own way, whatever interpretation you want to take to uh, his work uh, and who sees it is a big thing. You know, we went out of our way. We found it. We saw it. We weren't his audience. We went at it to be critical as to where other people go out of their way to find it because there is a niche audience for it. Just like the lighthouse, there's a will, there's a way. If you build it, they will come. People will see it. People will find it. But when that happens, not everyone's going to inherently love it and understand it the way that you decided it to be understood and how you understand it. And that critical nature is something that a lot of artists I don't think are capable of dealing with. And it's not a negative thing, you know, because I put, uh, you know, work out into the world. I'm working on a, a something right now that I'm, I'm getting ready to release and it, there's going to be criticism about it. I'm not going to be happy with it and it's going to upset me to multiple levels and make me not want to do things, but you can't take that as a, an insult. You can't take that as, oh, well, you know how much work was put into this. That's not the case in point. And being critical isn't always attacking. And so it's not like, you know, I'm trying to shit on, you know, what I dislike or what I, I don't think was adequate. It's just there's certain times and certain places. If I know what it takes to do this project and I think there are things you could have done, where does that come down to? And it's like, you know, I referred to Midsummer as a little bit of lazy editing. I'm not calling Ari Aster a fucking lazy filmmaker whatsoever. That's asinine. But the way he approached editing his piece, again, would have, uh, as we referenced the movie earlier, been helpful if maybe there's another editor or another team member or another artist on set. And you have to take into consideration all these people, respectively, are artists, your director, your DP, your actor, the, the guy making the food, the catering, every single person making this is an artist. So when you have an editor, you're working with a complete different artist who's going to have a different vision. And sometimes you need to be able to take that ego and, and take it down a notch. You need to be able to be hurt and be upset and to not like what you've heard, but use it as a constructive diving board to 
recreate things or say fuck it and make your four-hour movie and do it the way you want to. You can, like, braid. You can do that. It's not a four-hour movie, but it definitely needed somebody else's touch. It didn't get it that way, and it's still fine. It's still an adequate piece of cinema, and it deserves uh, attention. All right, you were uh, just talking about a little word called charisma, and my number three for the year is nothing but charisma. It's all charisma, baby. And that is a little movie called Dolomite Is My Name, or My Name Is... I can never remember the title of this movie because the title was shit. But regardless, I love this movie. Um, The entire time watching it, I was like, this reminds me of, like, Ed Wood. But it's just like the 70s blaxploitation version of Ed Wood. And it turns out the guys who wrote Ed Wood also wrote Dolomite Is My Name. So, hey, imagine that. And the, the thing that they accomplished in this film as well as Ed Wood, which was one of my favorite movies of like, I guess, 1995 maybe, um, is how charming they are able to make these characters seem and how fun they make like the characters and make it all seem so kind of wistful. And like, we really loved this period. We really loved Ruder and more. We really loved, the idea behind Dolomite, and you can feel that love in the film. And I think the film is amazing. Eddie Murphy does not do a good Rudy Raymore impersonation. Um, sometimes you can catch a little Rudy just with the gait of how he says stuff. And you know, oh, that's kind of how Ray, like Rudy Raymore's timber. But overall, he looks nothing and sounds nothing like Rudy Raymore. But that's beside the point because at this point, he's more of a, a character, sort of like Bela Lugosi and uh, Ed Wood. It's Charlie Murphy would have been the ideal Murphy for this project. And I know the film was dedicated to him, but man, Charlie really would have been Dolomite. That would have been amazing. God rest his soul. I didn't manage to see this. I totally forgot this was on oh, the list. so good, dude. I watched Dolomite like two or three weeks ago, not like I haven't seen it before. I watched Dolomite for the first time and oh, God, maybe since I was a teenager. I was really, really into black exploitation when I was around 19, 20 years old. And it's one of those things you really, really get into. You see about 70, 70 to 100 movies, and you're really, really into it, and then it never comes back. You just one day realize, like, well, yeah, I've seen Welcome nope. Home, Brother Charles. <laughs> I got over my black exploitation fetish in high school. Well, yeah, I watched a shit ton. I'm like, I'm kind of done with these because they're all kind of running together and becoming the same thing. Well, as a, a honky, I guess I'll, I'll have to throw that out there. You really get fascinated with um, you know African-Americans in the 1970s because the culture – was just not ours and it's something you know unless you have african-american family members or are close to people you don't really have this glimpse into to what was going on and this whole world and you sit down and you watch a, a like black caesar by larry cohen and you get this entire it just it's a whole new world that you yeah, never got to experience and will never get to experience and, and the it's fascination an world. is amazing well i think a lot of the fascination and what makes it amazing is you don't get to see these actors that and, and the big reason why you don't get to see these people is because they were black. And these guys and, and the girls are some of the most amazing talents you'll ever see in your life. And you're watching these movies and you're going, well, why the fuck weren't they in this or this or this in 1980 and 1970? Because they were of color. And so you, you get to kind of move into this world of literally, you know, African-Americans were getting fucked by the system then as they were now. And they had to step forward and make their own films. And you had some mostly Jewish white guys like Larry Cohen that stepped in and we're part of that vocalization and, and we're behind the scenes and working with these people, but it's an entire environment of, of Hollywood that's just kind of lost. And 
it's a shame that it's not given a lot of credit that, you know, these guys went out there and they made uh, quote unquote white movies for black audiences and people wouldn't see them because of that. So what's the problem with telling a black story in, in Hollywood that is so different than a white story? And it's just these questions. Uh, eventually, we'll get into this even more coming on a little bit later. But these things, I, I think, is what really makes guys like Dolomite um, more interesting, not than they should be, but than they usually would be. That I don't think a lot of people would go over and look at Rudy Ray Moore's career or what the Dolomite movies were because well, they're bad. Were terrible. But, yeah. but that doesn't matter. They're so enjoyably terrible. And it's not so, I mean, I guess it's so bad it's good. But at the same time, with this biopic well, I mean. of it's that era, like, it's so bad it's good. It's just how these guys went about making this art in a white dominated world where they literally were told like, no, you're black. We're not going to put you in a movie. And they said, fuck you. Okay. We're going to do it. And there's going to be karate and there's going to be nudity and there's, we're going to do everything. I think it's seen like the exorcist. Um, and the movie itself is not historically accurate. Um, I, I know probably they're giving more glamorous depictions of who some of these people were, but at the end of the day, it is a comedy it is about a bygone era. I mean, this is what people do with biopics. Um, they like they're filming scenes for Dolomite, but some of those scenes are actually scenes from Human Tornado and shit like that. So it's not all like matching up. But I'm not so much interested in this context, historical accuracy, like absolute historical accuracy, because that's not the story we're trying to tell. We're trying to tell the story of how all these people got together to make uh, what ultimately became one of the most like enduring charming black exploitation films and film careers of the 70s and it just it just all seems so weirdly wholesome that's what's so bizarre about the film in itself it just it makes you want to be there it makes you want to be friends with all the people like there like even though they're telling stories about pimps PCP um, murder, exploitation by the cops it's all just feels so fucking quaint in this this style they chose to make this film and it just made me like really but appreciate more movies a lot and a lot more well that's some of the reality behind some of these things is that it's a culture that a lot of us especially white people aren't privy to and, and understand so a lot of these things might sound shocking or uh, different from what you understand but this is a point and place where we forced african-americans into certain lifestyles in the 1970s and by we i mean the u.s what government. do you mean we we currently are still doing that what has yeah. it changed our government has consistently and constantly always treated people of color incredibly negatively and when it comes to people of color succeeding and doing things well the government will do everything possible to make that not happen and you've got these guys like Fred Williamson and, and Rudy Ray Moore that said, fuck you, we're going to do this and we're going to do it our way and we're going to have fun with it and we're going to make good products. And it's loose, good. But when you look at what they did with what they were able to do when they were able to do it, these guys, they went out and they busted their ass in an environment that was not acceptant whatsoever of them. And you look at this final product and, you know, like I've not seen um, Dolomite is my name. But just knowing the story, knowing who Rudy Ray Moore is, you know, having a passion for black exploitation and, and, and black cinema in general, you automatically know that, that you're going to feel something by the end of this. You're going to feel good by the end of this. You're going to feel proud by the end of this because you've watched literally how these guys came together and, and, and make this this piece that we all well, talk about. We all know. has the same ending as Ed Wood. 
it's almost like the almost the same like music swelling at the end when Dolomite finally is released and it's a hit. It's just it if you like Ed Wood, you will love this movie too. And it was just so refreshing seeing Eddie Murphy in a role again and him trying and accomplishing because he has so much goddamn talent that he gave up on for like twenty years, just like whatever, I'll be in a comedy every two years yeah, and make money you've seen, about it. You've had constant Eddie Murphy through the last two or three decades, but most of it's been pretty lackluster and family based comedies that the Eddie Murphy that we all grew up with and, and know and, and 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 love. He's so goddamn talented just as an actor as well. And I don't think he ever got his just due of being even like a dramatic actor. They always kind of, well, he's funny. Let's stick him in comedy. He's like, he can do so much more than that if you let him. And this is a chance. I mean, whereas it is still a comedy and very comic and funny. I mean, he does throw a lot of emotion into the character of Rudy Ray fucking Moore, who is like the most blue, ridiculous, like lounge comedian there was in the seventies. And to make you really like him as a person, not just as an entertainer, entertainer, like, I met Rudy Ray Moore, like, God, how long ago? It was like 15 years ago, shortly before he died. Uh, he was doing a signing, and he was dressed in cheetah print pajamas with a little hat, and he had a cane. Did not say a word during the whole signing, just signed people's shit, and I got a show later to do tonight, folks. Still working in his, like, mid to late 70s, still doing comedy shows. He was just a really interesting cat. I just think this was a great exposure, hopefully, for a lot of people to watch a lot of his old movies because they're just, amazing all on their own. I don't think it should just be a good introduction to his old movies, but black cinema in general. I think if you enjoyed this and you liked what you saw, go look up the other guys. Check out Pam Greer, man. Look up. Uh, just every, There's just so much rich quality, even down to like black-produced westerns. That you, for years and years and years, you get these all-white productions. Every Western movie is just, you know, white guys playing Indians. Just always white guys. You, you know, with like Fred Williamson, you get these all-African-American produced productions. And you start realizing and you look at these actors and it makes you wonder, why didn't I see them in this, 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 and this? And it really, really is because they were people of color. And otherwise, you don't get to enjoy some of these amazing talents. You know, you 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 think black exploitation is just a sticky kind of fun genre. You know, it's just a piece of the seventies. It's like grindhouse. No, this is an accentuation of art that otherwise was repressed. A lot of the things that are said and shown in black exploitation films are of political value in nature that even right now should be acknowledged and completely thought of because most people don't know what it's like to be black. Unless you're black, you can't, say you know how hard it is and what it's like and you watch these films you watch these productions you get to at least have a taste of what these people have gone through and it's art all of it it, it all of it comes out well even something as ridiculous as coffee or like tarantino's jackie brown which isn't necessarily black exploitation but certainly a nod to the genre all right hey get into your number three let's get this along Moving into number three, uh, I'm going to change mine up a little bit. I'm going to use I, – I had mine numbered a little bit differently at the beginning of the show, but I think I'm going to change it. I'm going to go for number three, Villains, from 2019, directed by Dan Burke and Robert Olson, written by Dan Burke and Robert Olson. stars Bill Skarsgård. It's about a amateur robbery crew, uh, girlfriend and boyfriend. They rob a gas station, then they run out of gas. They see that there's a house nearby. And they decide, you know, hey, what are you going to do? Let's go check it out. And then the story finally goes into absolute 
Insanity. You got Kira Sedwick and um, God, the guy from Burn Notice. What's his name? Bruce Campbell. <laughs> no, no, no. The other guy from Burn Notice. Uh, he was in Blair Witch. But Blair Witch too. Yeah, I don't remember his name. Shot in the nut. It's Jeffrey Donovan. Jeffrey Donovan and Kira Sedwick play the homeowners who have a deep dark secret. So uh, Bill Skarsgård and his girlfriend, I believe her name is Maka Monroe, plays the character Jules. They get into this house and they're just looking for a gas can. They just got to get out of here. They're going to Florida. They're doing a couple more bank robberies and it's the it's over. They're gonna start a new life finding seashells and starting a shell shop in Florida. Everything's going to be perfect. They're searching for a gas can, and lo and behold, what's in the basement? It's a little girl named Sweetie Pie, chained up. They got to save the day, of course. By the time they decide what they're going to do, the homeowners come home. So Kira Sedwig and Jeffrey Donovan have entered the scene. One of the most bizarre performances by Kira Sedwig I've ever seen. Now, she is a little bit older, but plays sort of a temptress throughout most of the movie. There's a very odd sex sequence with her and Bill Skarsgård where she pretty much rapes him dressed as a 1920s kind of flapper. It's bizarre. Everything in this movie is bizarre, but it all pays off. Bill Skarsgård's amazing, and this is one of the first times I've actually watched him act outside of it. Like, I know his brother, I know his dad, I've just not spent a lot of time with, uh, you know, his body of work as, as an actor outside of being a character. So I was really, really happy to, you know, be exposed to him, because this guy's fucking great. Bill Skarsgård is one of the best Skarsgårds, and there's a lot of them, but we should probably put him in a lot more movies, because he deserves it. And outside of all the makeup, he's a really handsome guy. He's got a lot of neat twitches to himself as an actor that like just through his entire performance he gets into i think he looks like a lizard i like lizards though i mean he's kind of got that like uh bearded dragon look to his face it's very sleek it looks like if he was running he could go very fast you know very aerodynamic (laughs) all right i think bill skarsgård is very he's the most dynamic uh arrow lead of all the skarsgårds so the movie progresses just, you know, it, it goes from these are the bank robbers and the bad guys to who really is the bad guys. So it's a, it's a reversal of a home invasion style movie. So now your two leads are being kept hostage by the absolute insane home, homeowners. And it begins to operatically spiral into absolute insanity. Not a lot of real complaints on my end. The story's pretty tight. It has a great beginning, middle, and end. Um, the ending's pretty emotional. I thought it was... Almost tear-worthy. I mean, you really actually get behind these characters and their hopes and their dreams and what's going on. And you've got just a very simple battle of what's wrong and what's right. And your lead characters obviously were doing something that was very, very wrong at the beginning of the movie. But by the end of it, you've somewhat forgiven them. And uh, you just get a good, old-fashioned character story. People change. You get to see into the mindsets of your two quote-unquote villains. Tables turn. All in all, villains. 2019, a very apt title, because who is the bad guy? That's a question that you can ask yourself every single day. It paid off. Jeffrey Donovan is a little bit younger than Kira Sedwig, and they made him up to, you know, look a little bit more esteemed, I guess you could say. And he has this southern gentry Doc Holliday accent throughout the movie, and it's fucking great. It's just, uh, he doesn't act like he normally does. It seems like he really, really got into this character, and it got under his skin, and it's fun. All of it just plays off um, on each other. All these guys, all these, all this talent, Jeffrey Donovan, Bill Skarsgård, uh, Kira Sedwig, everyone together plays off each other really, really well. And it's one of those things that you finally finish it and you, you feel a little completed. You feel like you watched a nice production. Um, obviously, a lot of money was put into this. It's shot incredibly well. 
I, it's one of those indie movies that still was like thirty million dollars to make, but still, it's it's an indie effort. And again, I guess it fits in with my whole theme of people growing, changing thoughts. All, all the movies I picked for my uh, 2019 list seem to have seem to have sort of a similarity with what happens in them. Well, it seems like uh, with my number three, um, that was the film I most just purely on a whole enjoyed watching. It kind of seems like you're kind of in the same camp with villains that it's not for really what it's about. That's what made it interesting. It's just the, the entire stew that the movie made. It's just like, this was really entertaining to watch. And I got payoff at the end. I got something to like wrap this whole thing up and make me feel like this, a complete story that I really enjoyed watching. And it's kind of the same thing with my film is just really kind of well-written films that aren't particularly about any kind of immense social issues or anything, but just really well-made, entertaining movies. Good old-fashioned, entertaining ones. You can take, I mean, a political commentary, I think, out of anything if you try hard enough and look at things hard enough. I don't think this is the type of picture that has a, a very hardcore meaning outside of some character development, things that you can look at as a human, you know, change who you are, what you're doing in life, secrets that you keep. But more or less, it's, it's just an entertainment piece. And this is, it's not really horror. I'm going to go ahead and say it's a pure thriller. And, but it's still, you know, it's got, it's got a lot of comedy in it. It's got pretty much everything that you would want out of 90 minutes of passing your time that you're going to laugh. There's a lot of attractive, pretty people doing what they do best, acting and putting on attractive, pretty performances. There's humor. There's a bit of violence. It's not overly gory, which usually, you know, that's something I want. I want some nudity. I want some violence. I really want to feel exploited. I really want to feel used when I, I go through every – if I'm going to watch something, I want to feel every emotion. I really want to feel hate, anger, used, abused, lust, everything. In this facet, you got a lot of comedy. you got – just a good it's just a genuine beginning middle and end there's not a lot to dig into there's not a lot to overthink about especially with a movie like this and really the most enjoyable thing is bill skarsgård and um jeffrey donovan acting off against each other that both of these guys are really really fun like them in a room them putting on these characters skarsgård's playing kind of a. Uh, uh, just a young, dumb drug addict. He's robbing banks. You know, he's got tattoos. He's just an anybody. He's just an American guy trying to do whatever he can, age 20-something. And then Jeffrey Donovan is just an explosive uh, southern dandy psychopath. So it's like uh, Truman Capote hanging out. It's fun. It's weird. It's fun. <laughs> Truman Capote hanging out. He was a southern dandy psychopath. All right. Um... Let's get to the hot button topic of the night. Hot my number button. two. A movie that was my number one for a while, but I've chosen my number one because for reasons that really involve like just filmmaking as a whole, social commentary, and a lot of different things. Villains so exactly this got my bumped number to my two. number two. And my number two is The Perfection. Oh. Hank, feel free, unload on me. It's not you know a matter of unloading. I just I, I'm I guess I'm now more interested handing the mic over to you to hear why the fuck this is your number two, and and then maybe I can compose something because I just it's, I don't dislike this movie. Let me before you say anything, do not dislike it. I think it's all right. 
that's literally it, though. I think it's all right. And I watched it when you told me how much you liked this movie. I watched it maybe three, four times just to try and see if I was missing something. But I think it's going to be chalked up to something like The Lighthouse, a matter of taste and style and, uh, you know, just personal opinions on this, because I do not get why you like this movie so much. Well, I like the movie because I think the story was incredibly tight. I think it had a visual sense for what the story was trying to tell. I think it was all very well story storyboarded, thought out, exactly where we're taking this, exactly what order to do these things. So I think on that level, on a production level, it was fairly quite amazing. And I enjoy stories that um, can end up having kind of a twisted ending where I didn't see it going this direction or I didn't see it going that direction. Not that, oh, it had a shock ending. Not that I'm so much into that, but just if you can – throw me off enough of what story you're trying to tell because this movie changes from segment to segment because there are basically three segments in it and each segment is generally the same story just told from a different person's perspective in that story and ultimately where it all ends up and the where it ends up i didn't see it particularly going there um and the fact that it was able to go round robin with all these different characters and for me to see it through all their different eyes and well, albeit a kind of complex plot. And I don't mean that it's hard to understand as much as it is. It's hard to wrap your head around because it does have some things that are beyond belief um, going on in the stories, but who cares besides the point we're in a fantasy world here. And this is very much, this was is definitely a fantasy world with real life issues thrown in the mix. This segment, I think, is going to be very, very mirrored to the lighthouse because all of the things that you're telling me are some of the problems that I have with the movie. Like, it's perfectly tight, and it's round, you know, and we discussed this with the conversation, the difference in tight. And it's beautifully shot. That's uh, A number one. It is a very beautifully shot film, and all the acting is amazing. It's just the ending is a really nice gut punch to the whole story of affairs that have been laid out in front of us throughout this 90-minute running time. Well, that was part of my problems, though, is that it was, it was very, very tight, and it fired on all cylinders. You know, it was a fast, mean machine, but by the time the, the ending unveiled itself to me and I was allowed to see what happened, I don't care. I, I, I get it. <laughs> I, I get the shock, but I think, and this has been our difference from, from day one with this movie, I don't agree with the ending. I don't I don't see what you see in it, and I think that a lot more nihilism could have been added. I think a lot more negativity. It's nihilistic as fuck. What are you talking it, about? It just doesn't seem enough for me because I still believe that he is receiving pleasure, and I just don't like that idea. So I feel that despite him being absolutely <laughs> maimed and destroyed, that he is still receiving pleasure. I mean, he's, he's not receiving pleasure. He's being tortured he can't with pleasure anymore. But they could have cut his. He can't do off. anything but hear the perfection, the thing he's wanted all along. He's finally got by these two people that he fucked up and have united as one. But that's are now something. just going to feed him sugar after dose of sugar. The unobtainable his whole life, which was unobtainable, was now been attained, and he doesn't even get to enjoy it because maybe, he just keeps getting shoved in his face maybe over I just and over again. A more literal aspect of that, you know, like Kevin Spacey in Seven. You know, he makes the guy literally eat to death. That That's the punishment. I understand what you're doing, and I, I get the visuals, and I get the ending of the movie, 
but the way you've presented it to me and what you've shown me, you, you didn't do anything I haven't seen before, and I wasn't shocked. I wasn't really fulfilled. It was like, okay. Well, just, I've seen similar stories to this before, but I mean, it's, just it was just done in a really tight, interesting way. It does. It didn't Which shatter my earth of like, wow, I've never seen the story. It's so original. It's not about that. It's just about taking something that has well, like, trampled territory and turning into something like a very interesting product at the end, which they very much achieved and made like visual jumps as they went. And just like, cause they focus on story and visuals both and, at the same of time. These, I mean, not I, that difficult. None of these things are like bad or problems that I inherently have with, with what this production ended up being. I just didn't, I don't know. Out of a lot of the other things too, I saw in 2019, I just didn't feel a lot of the emotion that you did. Like I get the anger. Oh, it was all there for me. I, I get the anger. I get the disgust. I, I feel it. It's all really relevant. But by the time it wrapped up for me, it was just one of those things. Like, all right, okay, I get it. You know, it, well, I and think it some of the problems you're having is that it does have a certain amount of coldness to it, somewhat like Neon Demon, where it's told the story is told in somewhat of a cold manner throughout the writing time. But I felt kind of the emotion of these characters and just some of the, the, the simple choices that they made, like I'm going to rape you with my hand stump. It's not that that's like shot me, shot me human centipede shit, but it, it's pushing some boundaries. It's pushing a little bit further into a kind of a, a twisted, interesting direction. And same thing with the ending of them both having lost their arm. Now they get like, they play perfectly together in this very odd artistic scene of torture and beauty all at once. I think uh, a thought that I just had with, you know, what you were saying, and I haven't really evaluated this before, maybe some of my problem comes down to the fact that your two lead characters become just as despicable as the person they're punishing with their actions by the end of the movie, and I don't see any redeemability. I understand that they are serving justice to what they think is serving justice but again it's something like the joker you know i get your message and i get what you're saying but i just the way you decided to do it now you've you've lowered your characters to the same level as the opposition and now i don't think they're redeemable now i think that they're just, just see like i don't them. feel the same way though I, I don't feel the same way at all because in this instance they you have been given a proper amount of like abuse of mind control of all these different things. I'm not saying whether justified in doing any of these things because it's not so much of a justification because this isn't like, this is almost like a fairy tale. This isn't real life. This is a just dessert situation. And I appreciated it on more of a twilight zone slash creep show slash easy comic sort of way. And that's really what it ends up being is it's almost like a, a crime and suspense story back from the old easy comics days. Where it's just here's your your premise, here's where we're going. Oh, just desserts at the end, and I just think it's not that so much it's a morality tale in, in this instance, as much as it is just kind of a beautiful combination of like a tale of revenge. I think everything about the movie, you know, qualifies it for being on this list, and it's something people really need to see and assert themselves to to come up with their definitive, you know, answer for the ending. But again, like The Lighthouse, I really, really think it's just two opinions here. And what's funny is you you feel what they did was just, not necessarily serving justice. In a reality, no, it's not justified in, yeah. in reality. In but reality, in this sorry. fantasy world, yes. I don't think it was just enough. 
So I think that's the problem here, that you are very happy with what you got, and I think for the actions that this person lifelong uh, handed out to other people, that they should have suffered much more, and I almost think he's been given a gift. So it's it's a very weird bizarrety of how you can look at these things, though. I mean, if you look at it through my example, there is almost uh, less room for hope than what is actually there with the movie and, you know, what what your review and your description of what's going on is. So I like your idea a little bit more. It's just for me as an audience member, that just seemed, it just well, seemed okay. unfinished again. If it you, seemed like another touch could have been added. If you had to listen to a Melvin CD every minute of every day of your life for the rest of your life, are you still going to just really be into the Melvins? Uh, oddly, I, I, do though like i listen to the record revolve like every day so it's that's um, fucked up hang yeah, but you don't I, listen to it all day every day but you see, you get my point yeah i know you i get, get what enough you're saying, of a but, good thing it's no longer a good thing it's the thing that ultimately ends up torturing you yeah but and I'm making not, you hate the one thing that you did love they took the one thing he did love completely away from well, not just sound in general unfortunately but perfection in itself uh, giving some spoilers away here the one thing he did love was uh sexuality and was perversion so they stripped that and took it away from him but i still feel in this essence of giving him one thing you're feeding back into this because now i mean and this is a technical thing, but you have to feed him, wipe him, keep him alive, keep this creature of disdain and hatred literally alive. So all your life now is focusing, is keeping this thing alive. But for what Is the game? revenge worth it yeah, to them the it was? Well, that itself is, I guess, the final for this because was the revenge worth it and to them it was. That's probably the best description of this movie, truly, because I disagree, but that's not the point of the movie. My disagreement and my opinion is literally not what is shown, and I just don't – it's not even direction or style. I just, it's not that I didn't care for the movie. I watched it a handful of times, and I just – I feel – a little incomplete with it, but that I think that sentiment, what, what you just said, truly encompasses the movie. That they, at the end of the day, these characters in this four walls that you're watching, they felt this was just. So all the actions in this movie are for a reason, and it is complete. I mean, it is in total. It's not like I got to the end of the movie and was like, "Oh, this is dumb." I was really shocked. the The stumping was pretty hardcore. The whole ending of the movie was was really volatile and and fun to watch. I just, I don't know. I just didn't have the right flavor for me, I guess. And to me, like the one thing, the the real reason I knocked off my number one spot is because my number one, I think, involves a lot more sociological issues and just consistency as a director. And the man who directed The Perfection, as far as I know, has not made any other major films. So he's a new young talent. And for him to, it, it, it's to be seen how he's going to shape his career and how talented he is. And my number one is, I think, an, an entire package of a film as well as director, as well as everything else. But we got to get into your number two. On to Hank's number two. Uh, yeah, well, my list has changed a little bit from when we started this show to now. So this was my number one, but I'm going to pick it as my number two, Depraved from 2000, uh, from 2019 by Larry Fezzedin. There you go, Hank. Larry Fezzedin. I have an incredibly hard time pronouncing this man's last name. I, I want to call him Fastbender no matter what, and it's it's not <laughs> – he is specifically from Manhattan, New York, and he's not a homoerotic German 
art director. This is a retelling of Frankenstein. I'm sure all of us know the story. We, we know what Frankenstein's about. Modern Prometheus, uh, can man do these things? Can man create life, quote-unquote? Which, obviously, yes. But uh, the story is furthermore updated, I guess. And to me, I think it was one of the, the better updates of Frankenstein. You got the De Niro picture, and in between that, you got a lot of shit from the the 60s onward uh, you've got the core three frankenstein films and then spiraling almost out of control uh since then there's just hundreds of retellings of the story and most of them focus on the the same core value of of creating a monster creating this horrific uh creature this entity and it works on a horror level larry took the story and gave it a little bit more emotion and i think a lot of the emotion that's missing from most retellings of frankenstein is really captured here because mary shelley's story is certainly one of emotion and love and conflicting feelings and pain and loneliness and all of that is captured really adequately uh, with what he did here a story that's taken him about 20 years to get made he's wanted to do this for quite some time this is a very new york movie it's shot in new york shot in manhattan i think it, it, it just has that fast neon sexiness that is kind of missing from new york movies now uh, that 80s late 70s uh new york feel that abel ferrara kind of loneliness and you're just you're just given frankenstein retold it's updated so you have technology you've got the war in iraq you've got a lot of different things that play into how these characters uh met each other how they became the scientists and how they uh created pretty much this monster uh this this perfect life form and updating the story gives you a bit of uh you know leg room to add new things into it a lot of things that would have maybe helped other frankenstein movies adding a humanization that you've got the story of the monster and he wants love and he wants to be accepted so you know you've got bride of frankenstein and the horror aspects of all of this and all of that's told in the initial story by mary shelley but when you're presented the story this time you you've just got a different level of humanization to it and you've got a lot of emotion you you formerly don't really think of the monster out of anything other than being a monster and that it's a, a, a terrible thing you know it's a monster and a horror story so it's supposed to be really really frightening and scary in this situation adam our monster given aptly the name of the first man but you find out later it's not because of that he has a different feeling to him he's not a monster by any means and what you're shown throughout the movie is really the message of creation who is the monster you know you create something and you try to control it and you try to make it uh in your own self-image like god for example and you've got a story of two gods who have to deal with an unhappy creature an unhappy creation and as frankenstein uh twists and has a very insane depressing ending this this also does and is pretty fulfilling out of every frankenstein movie i've seen i i mean you've got the original you, you can't talk shit on that this is one of the best this is the best i think this is the best translation not one of i think this is the best translation since frankenstein of mary shelley's work bold but uh, i think it's true like i am interested in larry pheasant as a filmmaker because he does make horror films, but he always makes them <clears throat> these incredible personalized stories because he is more interested in the richness of his characters. Like I haven't seen this one, but I'm just assuming from uh, a lot of his other work of really that's what he's mostly into is the characters that he's creating, the acting that is creating these characters and uh, kind of a human inner 
intertwined interpersonal relationship type situation. And that's but he cho- has chosen to do this in horror, which I find probably the most interesting. Uh, and that's really, truly what this is. You've got um, Joshua Leonard and David Call as your lead two doctors. So instead of it just being Dr. Frankenstein and Igor, you've got a, a different level of esteem here. Because when you hear the word doctor, or you look at characters that are doctors, you just assume that they're smarter than you, they're better than you. So it's not like Frankenstein and Igor crawling to the lab and finding Abby normal brain. You mean right? um, he didn't name him Dr. Frank? His middle initial is N. And his last name Stein. His name Some dumb shit like that is Henry, which is the name of of the doctor in the Mary Shelley novel. And then um, Paula Dory. I'm just talking about cute things that people try to do. They always like Doctor Frankenfurter, Doctor Franken. They just went with a guy's name this time. His name is Henry, and then I think the most clever nod throughout the entire movie is Joshua Leonard's character, who more or less would be considered the Igor character, is named Paula Dory. Polidori is the last name of a man who is uh, pretty much known as the creator of uh, the, the modern vampires. He was a very close friend of Mary Shelley and Lord Byron, and he was part of the creation of the storytelling of Frankenstein when they all got together and, and you know told their you – know, that's the creation of Frankenstein. All these people would get together, and they would tell these wild stories and eventually mold something out of it, and that's the creation of uh, Frankenstein that Polidori created – the modern vampire myth and the modern vampire legend. I, I it might be. I think it's vampire with a Y was his because um, Camilla, I believe, is written by somebody else. I'm a little bit dusty on my facts here, but vampire with a Y and no E at the end. It's a early vampire lore around the same time, uh, early 19th century. Victorian poetry sort of thing, but the name is, is certainly a nod to the connection of how Frankenstein was created and Lord Byron's group of friends that, you know, they all got together and they drank at Shelley's estate and all this wild. There's a Ken Russell stuff. movie about it called Gothic that I think people should check out. Yeah, it, and that's a great reference itself. A really, really almost boring movie i, I mean because you yeah it is rather like dry as yeah, fuck. You, you really expect there to be you know a lot of drinking and sexuality and all this crazy stuff it's ken russell and it's a bit of a dry um not lame but i mean it does drag i really enjoy the movie it's more of an educational sort of thing though if you're really interested in victorian fucking poetry and stuff like that uh which we took a, a weird hard left onto talking about polidori but all of these things, that's kind of what makes the movie itself so intriguing and so interesting is there is a lot of different layers to it. But most certainly the, the most pleasing thing is the relationships between David Call and Joshua Leonard, who Joshua Leonard plays the Igor character, but he is the money in this situation. He works for a company that is going to make this technology, is going to make this known, you know, and Henry David Call is a, a former Iraq war surgeon who wanted to just keep people alive so you've got money you know something again going back to the joker you've got this great display of classes and people working because they have to work and they have to get things done despite what their dreams are they have to fit a certain mold they have to work a certain way then you've got somebody who works for the corporation the the big uppity ups who doesn't care an emotion isn't part of what they need to care about or what they need to think about these two things come together with the quote-unquote monster played by alex bro uh, named Adam, uh, bro the French way, not, you know, bro. This creature has a different level of emotion. You think of Frankenstein like a monster or this vicious killing thing. And you even read the story, the only person he really harmly affected was the little girl, and he didn't understand that. It was an accident. This monster, this creation, 
is perfectly human and it's it truly is like a newborn but you know when you have a child and you've got this tiny little thing it has no comprehension of the world or, or thoughts thereof you've given birth to this this grown creature made of other parts it has concepts it has thoughts it just doesn't know how to understand and put them all together and what larry did was show you how this monster quote unquote childlike in nature is its own individual you can't take the individuality out of somebody you can't take the soul out of somebody and i think that's a big big purposeful point of what is shown with this modern retelling of frankenstein a lot of words but it's good this was my number one and i still really think it strongly is number one material but we changed it up a little bit my number one ends up being something i just really enjoyed watching a little bit more because you're dealing with Frankenstein here. It's an indie movie, so sure. There's a lot of production you could have wanted with something like Frankenstein and, and answering some of those questions. The monster is handled differently. It's not some horrific piece-together thing. It's a guy. There are some scars. There are some great effects. The way the movie was shot is, is beyond adequate. It looks great. It's smooth. It is very indie. So you got to take into consideration you want some amazing frankenstein monster but the story isn't about that it's about men and it's about i mean it's about humans it's about humans and human emotion and human thoughts and what makes you human it's a really really great retelling i really was was taken aback this is one i picked that i didn't i mean it's frankenstein retelling story i didn't think it was going to be anything amazing and at the end of the day it really is like this was a great movie from 2019 Sweet, still haven't seen it, <laughs> but I do enjoy Larry Fessenden's films and just his work outside of his own films, him being a producer, an actor, and a lot of indie productions. Anyway, anytime he shows up in a, like an indie horror movie, it always makes me smile. It's just like, all right, well, we know this one's got some clout. Larry showed up in it. <laughs> it's got some, it's got some ump behind it. I picked this movie and I wanted to watch it because Larry directed it and it was his production company. And when you, you know, notice his name and you notice Glass Eye, you get something a little bit different. A movie we really weren't super fond of on this program. And, you know, I don't think were unjustly unfair to but uh you know larry his company did the ranger a lot of different styles a lot of different things and what i can really appreciate from a guy like larry is he has the ability to see the the talent in people you know he worked with you know, like ty west was one of his understudies and assistants and he works with these people he sees their style he sees what they're capable of and he gives them room to grow and he lets these people i mean because the movies that come from his production company and then the movies he makes are very different beasts so this guy, as, a, as an artist, is a true connoisseur and is able to look at people and look at what they're capable of and give them room to grow and, you know, has a really, really great diving board uh, with his production company being able to do that. So not only do you get the treat of, you know, movies written and directed by Larry, you get movies written and directed by an amazing group of, of talented different people that seems to be constantly changing. I mean, you had uh, Ty West, and then you've got something produced by uh, Heather Buckley, like The Ranger, that it's just a, a long... All these names, all these people are just are people you're going to have to start paying attention to, like Heather Buckley. Her name's going to be up there soon. You're going to be noticing her. She produced The Ranger. All of these guys come from Larry's camp. All these guys and gals come from Larry's camp. Like, we all know who Ty West was, but we wouldn't if it wasn't for Larry. All right. Is there anything you want to say about Depraved Diddy Moore? Before I move on to my number one movie of 2019, I think we're good for the uh, final. We're, we're at oh, the, the end big here. reveal that everyone already knows—the big reveal. 
Yeah, so the best movie I thought of 2019 was Us by Jordan Peele for a variety of reasons. Uh, let me get off on a little rant here about Jordan Peele. Um, at one point in my life, I never thought that the dude from Mad TV and a mediocre Comedy Central show would be the new voice of horror, of an important voice in horror. I mean, he's up there on the ranks of Toby Hooper and George Romero. It's like getting there. I, I I'm not think saying he's he quite there, but he's getting there. I think he's on to a level of stardom that, you know, if he handles it the way he's continuing to handle it, that he could easily be at, you know, like Hitchcock levels by the end of his career. Well, that's the interesting thing is this was his opportunity to fail because it's a sophomore film. Did he only just have uh, get out within him? And that was his, his big thing, his big, like, you know, speech to the world of this is who I am as a filmmaker and then just make a bunch of crap afterwards. But he succeeded with his sophomore film, which is incredibly hard for people to do because I thought Ari Oster slipped a little bit, but I think Jordan Peele just cemented his place and greatness in horror filmmaking. And why I think this is such an important film. Um, first of all, I've heard a lot of people say, oh, that thing that, you know, that thing that's all about like race and it's, it's all about racist. racial issues. Like it's got nothing to do with racial issues whatsoever. If I mean, you were such a how, dense person that you took this movie and you combined it and all of your thoughts came down to something as, as ignorant. Because it had black race. people in it. Well, that's because what, it starred black people. <laughs> I was going on into this earlier and, you know, just talking about African-American cinema in general. But this is one of those things that's just absolutely bizarre to me. If this story was told about all white people. It, it, nobody would have had a problem with it. This would have just been some random fucking movie that a bunch of people saw and it was fine. But a lot of the stink comes down to the fact that they're black. So what well, are you trying to say to me that a story about black people isn't as deserving to be told as a story about white people? Because I don't give a fuck who they are. I don't. I, you're, you're showing me these people. So what you're asking of me is to just look at them and that's it. I don't fucking care who they are. I don't care if they're a bunch of lesbians or transgender people or black people or white people or a bunch of fucking teenagers played by 30 year olds and Skeet Ulrich is killing them all off. I don't give a shit. That's not what I'm watching with art. That's not what you're trying to convey to me. Where does the color goddamn matter with the plot? Well, specifically with this film, I mean, the fact that you like he chose black actors for his majority, you know, his his protagonists in the film that does have societal issues put on it. But within the frame of the context of this movie, you could have cast white people and have been the exact same story because it's what a movie really is, and a story about class consciousness. That's all it's about. <laughs> The most integral thing when it comes to the storytelling of this movie isn't the people or the color of the people. It's the fucking Hands Across America commercial. Like, that's it's, that's the really big thing you need to make notion of is that commercial. It doesn't matter that the... It's uh, about the haves and the have-nots specifically. And the tethered have always been the have-nots, and they're rising up from being have-nots, from being spit on as being lower class basically their whole lives. I mean, we're in a, a, a more of a fantasy element and a sci-fi element, this but is that's the, message the basic that, ideas. I mean, this is the message that Joker, I think, was actually trying to show, but I think a lot of people's uh, confusion, and, you know, it's something like with The Witch. Was The Witch there? So people are going to look at the first movie and obviously get out. Has something to do with race. 
I, I don't think you're that dumb to not think that movie's about race. So everybody sat it's down and watched everything that. to do with race. This film is nothing to do with race. Well, that's the issue, though. Everybody sat down and watched that and went, okay, so this guy's going to make movies about black people and it's going to be about being black. What is, okay, one, why does that scare you? Why is that a problem? I, I am baffled utterly and completely by why that's a fucking problem. I mean, you'll sit down and watch Friday and you have no problem with it, but what, is that a black movie? Is that why you like it? It's a black movie. I, I, I feel like it's a, it's, it's not a normal movie. That's fucking stupid. It, it's just not a, a way to make sense of production. Not even production. A way to make sense of art. That So an African-American guy did it, and it stars African-American people, which there are Caucasians. There's a lot of honkies in the cast. Where's your displeasure here? Where is this automatically going to uh, a race? Because I can't relate to them because I don't understand their color. Yeah, you're uncomfortable because they're people of color. and They're middle-class you... people. Yeah, that's but... literally all they are. And maybe that's and something, too, that makes all audience adorable. Like, all the people are, have so much charisma. Um, uh, I can never remember the actor's name. He was in Black Panther. He's in this. He plays the, the husband-father in this film. He is, like... As a character, one of my favorite characters in films of this year because of just how, like, pleasing it is to be around, how charismatic he is, how interesting he plays his character. And um, just like Jordan Peele as a filmmaker, what makes him so intriguing and kind of special is he's just so incredibly tight with everything he does. Because like I was always saying about Get Out, that script is fucking amazing because everything has meaning. And he did it again it with Winston us because Duke? everything has meaning in this film. Is, is it Winston Duke? Is that his Winston name? Duke. I can't remember his name. I think Cannot it's Winston Duke. For the life not of one, I've been sitting here thinking about it, but I think it's Winston Duke. I'm sorry. Randomly off subject. No, uh, And we discussed this with um, you know, the conversation, the terminology tight. And there are really two different ways that you can look at things. Nothing is wasted, basically. Well, Nothing is wasted. This movie is a great example of both usages of the word tight because it fires on all cylinders. This movie is like a hot car, man. It runs on everything it can run on. It, it's This is like a Tesla. It's the most perfect model of whatever that could run on the streets. But at the same time, it's incredibly tight. Everything that you're seen or everything that you're shown – you, you see for a reason. All of these things are placed together so perfectly. I mean, and I, I really actually prefer um, Get Out. I thought that was a stronger movie than Us. But comparing these two is, is like apples and oranges because they're absolutely completely different beasts from different places and different environments. And I don't think that this is uh, like less adequate than something like uh, Get Out. I just enjoyed it more. It really came down to what story I thought was told more powerfully. And I completely understand where this is coming from, and I get his point behind all of it. There's just something, and it's not that things aren't explained well enough, or it's not that I have a problem with the golden scissors. There's just something that didn't click. There's just something about the theory of who the untethered are and your representation and how it was, you know, like, you get to the point where you see the tethered do everything that I think you're do, having but... the problem that a lot of people had, which was, well, what the hell was going on this whole time under you? Like, there's all of this that you didn't explain. It's like, it's the government in it. Who gives a shit? That's well, really that wasn't not even, the point of the movie. I completely understood that, and that didn't so much bother me. It's just, uh, how did this one person find them? And it's like going back to some other things that we had problems with, like coherency and, and the story being told. Like, Midsummer. there's a lot of things that are shown to you 
and presented to you in the movie that eventually don't end up mattering or making a difference. And with this, there's just you, you're shown so much stuff, but how did any of it even come to be? And it's not like on the level of well, the government. Well, there's a certain it. amount of non coincidence going on in the film because nothing is coincidental. The fact that she met her tether like at a young age was kind of always meant to be because if you know like the, the whole 11 11 thing that's throughout the film yeah it's 11 they're black flag shirts people are wearing and not because it's socially relevant today it's because the black flag logo looks like 11 11 um just all the like the when they're at the uh, beach and, and all these uh, coincidences starts happening like the the frisbee lining up with the, the polka dot on the blanket and all these things because all this was meant to be it's and like if you mid-summer. really think about it I mean, how I the, brought uh, up with the editing, what? and oh, it's like I, I brought up with the editing in Midsummer. How a lot of these things, like you see the sisters' suicide throughout the movie. If you look in the trees, you look into the rocks, the faces of the dead parents and the sister show out uh, because all these things happen to put her in this place. So you have to see the cause and effect of what's going on to truly understand the the, the full point. And I get it, and everything is shown very adequately. I just. There's just something that seems missing a little bit, and I can't put my finger on it, though. That's the thing that really has annoyed me the most with this movie, and I think why I I have a little bit of an unpleasant taste in my mouth is just – it's not that I wanted or needed anything more. There's just something I can't put my finger on that didn't fulfill me, that just left me a little – uh, what empty, as to where like uh you know get what out. were the the tethered able to accomplish at the end of the film besides mass murder and whatever well, other you know, things that, that truly might be my problem because i'm not quite sure what they accomplished i don't know unity what, yeah but the hands across america was notoriously a bomb it didn't work there were not hands across oh, yeah, america there were like weird I mean little groups the of them but the tethered all stuck together they are that unity that we've been looking for in the human race. They understand they didn't have unity. an option. That's the thing. And uh, they, you know, Hands Across America was a thing to make a representation of this is a good thing between people. We can do this because people are inherently good. Unfortunately, people are not inherently good, and that's just not the way uh, things go. The Tethered had no option but to be this way because they've spent their entire lives – being this way all they know is how to work much like we have we just can't find that unity because we are the tethered we're not above ground well there's like it just depending on class i mean i know where you and i land on a class scale and we're basically the tethered but we can't have unity social democracy unity but the tethered don't know they're tethered and that's what makes them so interesting they They find out though yeah but they worked together at that point they didn't know who they were or what they were they knew they existed and they worked together and then when they found they were being fucked they worked together us the untethered when we find out we're being fucked we don't work together we do everything to fuck the other person that might be fucking us it's a percentage sort of thing that there's no consistency but at the end of the movie where is the consistency, though? Because who fucks who? You've got this yin and yang sort of thing. Again, like with villains, who truly is the villain? Who truly is the bad person here? Are you a bad person for wanting to escape? Are you evil for hating where you're at and hating your life and wanting to make it better? If it causes pain and She just did harm? only think about herself, though, as we find out at the end of the film, that she left all the tethered behind, and it took one of the the rich to really or whatever you want to say one of the untethered to really set the uh, the tethered free and so show them the potential of themselves 
I mean, it, it's just Max from Videodrome shooting everyone at the end of the movie. Uh, he did everything his entire life for himself. And then at the end of the day, he, he had to save the world from what's going on, from this tumor that is Videodrome, as to where, uh, uh, was it Lupita? Uh, Adelaide was Lupita the character. Lupita Duingo? Name. Uh, last name, I'm not going to say correctly, but Lupita's character generally is the opposition of that. She knows what could save both worlds and selfishly chose her own. I mean, so mm-hmm. it's more human than anything else. And again, taking me back to Get Out and why I think I preferred that a little bit more is I think you should humans more adequately in, in that. This almost gives a hope. This movie almost gives an inkling that people are capable of of making changes as to where Get Out clearly and devastatingly let you know people cannot. Well, see, that's where you and I differ, and that's more of a level of positivity in filmmaking and having hope at the end and not just wallowing in bullshit like Joker. Not saying that you like that film or anything, but just how we end up differing on endings and the idea of hope and change because we've had the political conversations before about it and i think this like what is so impressive about jordan peele is because he's been able to make this movie that can touch people in so many different ways um also the fact of just him being who he is as a filmmaker being important to society being important just in itself of what he's been able to accomplish and the fact that he is such a great writer at what he does to figure in also on an engagement level with an audience, because you can just look at this as a like a body snatcher style horror film, but it has a lot of social consciousness in it, a lot of relevant to today's issues as well as older issues and just discussing society as a whole. And that's what really makes a great filmmaker, especially a great horror filmmaker, if you're able to do that. Because like Wes Craven, nobody like the professor, he's the director who did that. George Romero was the director. They, they were all directors who were able to really break down what makes humanity tick and then put that in an engaging way for a mass populated audience and i think jordan peele is currently doing that like no other director is and that's why it's at my number one um for a lot of different reasons other than the fact that it's a great film but it's also an important film on a lot of different aspects of it and that's why it kind of has to be number one i just think he's he's going to be remembered as one of the greats personally as long as he keeps up what he has been doing and at this point he's got carte blanche to do where the fuck he wants to do because it might not have made as much money as get out but he still made a shit ton of money of us well even down to here's just one of my favorite pieces of interior relevancy to, to his plot and what he's doing in the film he made like there's a such an importance to the song in the trailer of i got five on it and that's relevant because what is five, uh, the song about, I've got five on a dime bag, which is what? Half. Because that is what this whole movie is, is about halves meeting their other halves and seeing like what truthfully is going on in the world around us. So it's just brilliant on all, just so many different aspects. I think uh, it's really apt bringing up Romero with Jordan Peele, that he reminds me a lot of George A. Romero. And that hope, man. That's why... That you see what I'm saying about the ending, though. The with George Romero, you have that hope it, it of you have to try, like, even though you're going to be 
trounced upon. Same thing with Jordan Peele. You still you try. At the end of this movie, you can compare it to something like Day of the Dead because it's it's still escaping and you still don't know who you're with or what's going on. And that's something really shown in Day of the Dead that you don't know who any of these people are and none of them really know each other. And they, they talk about it, how nobody knows who anybody is or what they're doing. And at the end of the day, your mother, your father, your best friend, your boyfriend, your girlfriend, your cat – you don't know what's going on in their head, and you don't know who they are. You know, you don't know who anybody is at the end of the day. You don't even know your own wife. Maybe she's a weird, tethered person who you never knew. And what's important about that is there's always two different versions to people, including yourself. So you might know somebody for 20 years, but do you have you ever taken the time to actually know them? So, again, it's a very provocative uh, picture. Everything we picked tonight, and again, that's the word of the night provocative well, they it's also things. very rare that you get something that's also incredibly visually stim- stimulating as well as mentally mentally stimulating as this film emotionally stimulating it just hits so many boxes and that's why it kind of has to be number one i definitely found it uh probably one of the most fulfilling movies of the year but i still like get out a little bit more um and it's funny because it seems like everyone we've talked about tonight that we've got the Eggman, ari aster and jordan peele i uh, so I like Get Out more than I like Us. I like Hereditary more than I like Midsummer. But I'll switch it up. I like The Lighthouse more than The Witch. We differ on that, but whatever. It's not a big deal. Yeah, so I guess now moving into uh, my final film that I'm going to have to explain a bit. Because truth be told, Villains is the number one movie on my list. It's the- <laughs> It's curveball. (laughs) It's it's a curveball, but I got reasons. Villains is very well produced, very well acted. It's all good. Everything about it's pretty good. The problem with villains is it's just pretty good. It's you can watch it, you can get it. There's no four or five times. There's no going back to villains and going, oh god, you know that one part. You know that one part that was so fucking crazy, and I didn't. There's none of that. You don't have any of the. Just fun of of being afraid. There's a lot of fear that has been stripped when you add comedy elements to things like Shaun of the Dead. There's some scary stuff in that movie, but it's so funny. It kind of takes away from a lot of that power that you end up laughing. And do you want to laugh or do you want to be afraid? Do you want to be there? You got to look at your spectrums of emotion. Do you want excitement? Do you want happiness? Do you want to laugh and feel free? Maybe you should watch a Paul Rudd movie. The Wind by Emmy Tammy, Emma Tammy, and written by Teresa Sutherland is not a Paul Rudd movie, and it's not fun or, or happy at all. Uh, I watched this more than any other movie on my list, really because of the, just the, not confusion, but the, the sometimes when you're sad and you're extended and you have sadness for a very long time, there's a odd, like, a haze and confusion that sticks to it. You don't know what day it is. You don't know if you've taken a shower. You don't know if you've eaten. You don't, you know, you don't really pay attention to details. And somehow this film managed to really bring that like mental fugue into a reality for me. That what you're watching here is, uh, it takes place in the 1880s, and it is kind of a western. It's about a family that is living out on the plains. Constant noise, constant wind. It's it's just completely awful. They have suffered. The loss of a child and a new family moves in and the new family becomes pregnant and these things with the added fear of planes, demons, and witchcraft, all of the demons referenced in the movie are actually lesser key of Solomon entities, which makes it a little bit scarier when you can uh, you know, put a face to what things are, when you can look them up and see that people have been afraid for thousands of years of these things. 
it, it, it adds a different level of horror, like Pazuzu from The Exorcist. You know, it's a real thing, so you can look into it. You can put your own face to that sort of fear. And you've got all of these complexions of emotion that the loss of life, the, the creation of life, love, lust, there's uh, – trying to stay as spoiler-free with uh, my reviews tonight – there's a thousand different layers to what's going on in the story, and choosing to tell it in a setting like the 1880s strips you of so much. Uh, for one, your production value has got to be a thousand times more because you got to find shit that makes it look like it's the 1880s. And then two, a lot of the things that you're used to are stripped away, and a lot of these things that you're used to, you use to tell story. So when you have to tell story uh, an old-school way, it, it kind of... It completely changes uh, what you're watching, you know, because you think, oh, it's a Western, so it's going to be a certain way. You have, you know, like Tombstone, you you have these expectations of to what a Western is going to be. And when they're fulfilled differently, it makes you look at, at life a little bit differently, that all these things that are really scary can still be told and applied to other angles or other places in time. So I think the setting and the, the placement of this movie was pretty key to it. And, and calling it a Western, I think, is... An important part of what you're watching because you have to strip away a lot of the comforts of 2019, the future, what you have to understand the desolation and loneliness that these people are feeling that these characters that you're introduced to don't have friends. They don't have a store to go to. They have to completely rely on themselves, somewhat like the family from The Witch. It's the impending doom of being alone that truly drives what you're, you're witnessing and what's going on with this story. And then you have, uh, you know, the psychological and horror aspect of what's happening. Uh, you're introduced very early on that there is possibly demons or, or ghosts or something. There is a supernatural tinge to the story, and you have to follow what is reality and what you're seeing. And like The Lighthouse, you're watching somebody fall upon themselves in a time of uh, mental anguish, a time of just incredible stress. And as things progress and the story is told through bits and pieces of the lead character remembering what has happened and what is going on to her while living uh, through atrocities and horror at the same time, you're exposed to just a raw nerve. And you you get this mental fugue that you get when you're depressed. Everything's confusing. It's just it's gray and it's hazy. You can't really tell uh, linear-wise how time is being told in the story or if something is happening or has already happened or is about to happen and all of these things are, are shown to you and it's something like i discussed with braid you can call it lynchian if you want to this movie takes that approach this movie has that very bizarre uh time-wise aspect of not knowing where things are, are going into place like a david lynch movie but it doesn't apply to the lynchian aspect of things because it it makes sense it's not just fluff for the sake of making a scene really weird and long which a lot of people will do and say it's Lynchian, and it just annoys the living fucking hell out of me. This is an old-school ghost story with a twist. I think, personally, you will not enjoy it. I think you're going to think the twist is almost M. Night Shyamalan-esque, but at the end of the day, this movie actually made me cry a little bit, and it really hurt my soul. It really made me upset, and that's what I want. I want to watch... And feel and 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 just take everything. If, if I'm going to laugh my ass off, I want to laugh my ass off. But if you're going to hurt me, you better fucking hurt me. And the wind, it left a little bit. It, it really wasn't comfortable. I was upset, but I was upset in the right ways. It wasn't like, oh, you fucking shoved a fist in somebody, you know, or you shoved a stump in somebody. You actually showed me things that visually upset me and not shocked me. You made me feel. 
I'm mad at you for that, the wind. You made me feel. Well, I, I sure is don't think that, like, may, a movie making you feel is not important. It's incredibly important to the dynamic as a film goer. Um, and I think that's where we differ, like, especially on our list and some other aspects. It's just the kind like, the different feelings that we're currently wanting to explore at times. Um, I, and I think that's generational too, with, in a lot of different respects, because I'm at a point in my life where I've dealt with so much bullshit that I really just want not a whole ton of hope. I don't need just, you know, I don't need swelling John Williams music at the end, just a thimble, just a little bit of a bright light at the end of it. And I, I just sure want to feel those things, but I want to feel like just every aspect of emotion. I just, I don't want just sadness or just despair. Man, a lot of the movies tonight just like discuss mostly those aspects of human emotion. But almost where everything you throw that I in picked was almost exclusively, and I didn't mean to do it this way. I didn't like sit down and, and come up with a great idea. All of the films that I have picked tonight that I've discussed all feature that, and it, it truly is about growth uh, and despair. And that's that's where I was so intrigued with the wind because it, it, it begins very – it's just sad. It begins like, okay, this is like Lonesome Dove. This is just going to be fucking sad. And as the wheels begin to turn and you add in all these other emotions like anger and fear and jealousy and then you add in the supernatural aspect of, of this multiple – planes demon idea and that everything is haunted and, and horrifying when it finally hits you at the end and you're presented with what happened it's like a whim winders kind of sadness it's one of those like oh and you feel it you feel it in your bones even if the situation hasn't happened to you you can feel just a, a loneliness that was captured on film and out of all the endings of, of every movie including us midsummer uh, the Lighthouse, this was beautiful. The ending of this movie is one of the things that made it for me because it was just, it's one of those times when you see something and you just, it hits you and you go, wow, that's it. Wow, that's the shot. And it, there was no other option. You couldn't have thought of anything better, but what you saw was it. And it's just a powerhouse. I mean, the end of this movie I thought was just shot with such balls like it was because it really takes you as an audience member you have to watch what's going on this isn't a movie that you can sit on your phone and fuck off for a little while you need to pay attention because everything that you've been shown is 100 percent necessary this is a tight but very loose movie because it it feels like it takes eight years to finish and it's because it's it's a lonely movie that takes place in 1880s plains middle america so it is very lonely and it's it's just these ends of all these things that come and connect together in the midst of the loneliness, when you watch them and you follow and you realize where the trigger was pulled, uh, so to say, you get how all of these things uh, relate upon each other. But the way the director and editor chose to show you and, and unveil these things is just intricate and really fun. It's very similar to your cello movie with how things are unlaid, that you you don't really know who anybody is or what's happening until it's all too late. Well, I, like you were saying, like in the wind that when everything kind of all the chips are on the table and everything gets connected, it's a very satisfying thing in film because 
a, a lot of people like myself, you can outsmart movies like you know, so many times out of all the movies you watch. But when you get a film that you can outsmart and it kind of connects all the dots at the end, you just have like an oh moment at the end. And it's always pretty like satisfying because I felt the same way uh, about a movie from the early 2000s called Birth with Nicole Kim and that Jonathan Glazer. This guy directed Sexy Beast and um, uh, the Scarlett Johansson movie that I can't remember the name of right now. Oh, Under the Skin. Under the Skin. It's bizarre. When you said it, I'm like, I don't think I've seen this. And now it's starting to come back to me when you said Jonathan Glazer. Like, oh, God. And that's a weird thing with early 2000s films. There's just like a whole vault of shit we've seen that we just, like, Get Carter. Remember that remake? We've all seen it. I just don't know where it is. (laughs) I barely remember it. The Italian Job also got remade. I've been watching a lot of Michael Caine movies recently and uh, dealing with how bad Michael Caine remakes are. What a waste of a fucking actor. But just in general, I think you can say from our top films of the year, most of these are emotional exercises that also have story, also have incredible filmmaking um, down to a technical level because I would stand by – all of my films on a technical level. Not that my, uh, Dolomite is my name was just overly impressive technically, but for it to take place in the seventies where you had the costume, it, it all worked very well, but I mean, it was shot. That's one of the of things with the wind that kind I, of plainly really remarkable though. I mean, it's, it's just production value sometimes really is important. And, uh, you yeah. know, bringing up the witch, like uh, a weird, this isn't a complaint that I would have ever known if it wasn't for the director. I was listening to the audio commentary, and he called note to look at the candles, that the candles were not uh, accurate to what would have been used in the time period, that they would have been used more gray, brackish-looking candles made from animal fat, and they wouldn't have been as pretty or as nice. And one of the interesting things about The Witch is most of the movie was shot on, like, candle light. Like, they, they were lighting that way. So, of course, they were using up-to-date real candles. But you watch The Wind... There's even a shot that is somewhat important to what's going on with the movie where you get this display of all of their candles. What are they? They're the accurate candles for the time period. So somebody went through and made this or found this or, 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 or procured it specifically for this shot just to give you an example of what these people's lives are. And a shot like that isn't, uh, you know for decadence it's not to just show you something but if you understand what those candles are then you suddenly have a realization that eight nine hours of these people's days are made to these candles a lot of the shots with the wind uh that you're given are a a little boring and they all have reasons for being that way because you have to understand her life you have to understand tending to goats you have to understand what it's like to literally have nothing and still be ultimately free because that's a big point in this is you you know even with uh, early america and what a lot of our founding fathers and, and people in our history did you know you move out to the plains you move out to california you wherever was was wild and unknown at the time you're giving up absolutely everything for your freedom and that's a key with freedom that i don't think a lot of people understand is to have it you have to give up a lot and that's not saying well our troops go out there and i vote you have to give something up to be free these people gave up their lives their friends their stories their everything to go live in the middle of fucking nowhere to be free and and to accept that and at all costs that freedom ends up uh enveloping them and and destroying them and it's what takes away from you so even something like the joker you look at what freedom is you look at what 
getting even is. You look at your feelings. You look at how your life has been. At what cost do these things come into play to get what you want? Are you going to go kill a fucking talk show host? If you are, shoot me or Alexander Nash. Neither of us particularly enjoy being on this earth. But that's not the point. You don't – that's not a – Hey, you're you're happy these days. Kill me. Uh, it's not even that I want to die. I just there's got to be something else going on somewhere. I feel like I'm missing a party. You know, like every day on Earth, I kind of feel like I'm missing a party somewhere. That's you know, like got space crack or hell crack. Maybe I don't know. It doesn't have to be crack, but you know, like like uh, other drugs, other world drugs. You gave up your parties for this show. I ruined ten years of Friday nights for you. <laughs> You'd think so. You'd really think so, but there's there's been a lot of uh, death by DVDs a party. This is the party. Where else would you want to be? What else would you want to be doing outside of? As we talk about loneliness and sadness, uh, it's, <laughs> I think a, a key part of art is exposing things that make people feel. And there's so many different ways of doing it. I mean, you've got guys like Tom Six doing the ass to mouth series. At the same time, despite the amount of disgust and bizarrity that he shows throughout those movies and comparing him to somebody like Lucifer Valentine, all of them have a point. Everything he's done has a level of significance, and then it takes you to something like The Eggman and releasing The Lighthouse. He knew that there is a certain audience that's going to find his work. He didn't make this for monetary gain. He didn't make this as a, a move to be the next Martin Scorsese. He made an art piece. You've got these guys existing on, on all ends of the spectrum, the problem is most people don't want to connect them. Most people don't want to look at a Tom Six movie and go, well, that's as good as The Lighthouse. Sure, it might not be shot the same way, but the messages a lot of these indie guys are trying to show is all through emotion, is all through pain, is all through different levels of feeling. So you can watch something that's transcending and incredibly sad and about life and death and birth and the human mind like The Wind. Or you could watch something like The Human Centipede Volume 3, which is an excessive uh, just – awful display of gratuitous male-oriented uh, sexualized art and at the same time both of these things have a common thread and something that can meet in the middle and it's that somebody fucking put effort into it there well, was the a story is, what are you trying told. to communicate because that's probably the, one of the most important things through cinema even if it's just humor what are you trying to communicate to your audience what are you trying to make them feel and if you're making them feel nothing really what's the point of doing this at all then it just becomes a job. It's just another exercise. So who cares? Who cares about making movies specifically for profit? I mean, because Michael Bay, do you think he enjoys making movies? I seriously doubt it. I mean, there's some angle of, of studio guys that I think they do. I mean, you've got to look at I guess just different types of people. I mean, you have a specific style of art that you're into. I have a specific style I'm into. Not everyone does, though. Some people like music, but they don't like music. You know, they don't have a genre. Some people just like films. Some people just want to work. And, you know, you've got a lot of appreciation and value for these guys that go out there and they just work. But uh, some of the problem with that is you're going out there and you're, you're doing your darndest and doing what you love. But the product at the end of the day for people like you and I and there's, you know, millions of others that see art in, in the, the way we do. But not everyone does. And, I, you know, I'm not, like, trying to insinuate that people hear this show incorrectly or take our opinions the wrong way. But you, you just can't always agree. You just can't always look at it and go, they put in a lot of hours and they're a studio guy and this is what they do and they're, they're chasing their dreams. 
I have appreciation for what you're doing, but that doesn't mean that I can always appreciate what you've done. Your final product that you've given to me as an artist, I might have, uh, you know, some critical nature on it, despite knowing that it took you 12 hours to get this crane shot. It's really hard to do what you do. I understand it. I'm not saying it's any harder to do what we do, but when you have an opinion and you want to formulate it and you actually want to not sound like a complete and utter piece of shit and all you get in return is you don't know how hard it was, yeah, that doesn't do much for me. I, 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 I know. I, I wasn't there on the set of Braid while they were filming absolutely everything. I don't know how hard it is, but as somebody that watched it and had emotion and took this art that was given to me, I feel that I have a place to at least tell you about it. Why else would you show me this piece unless you wanted me to talk about it, right? In theory. Yeah, that's pretty much it. That's the best of 2019, folks. So 10 movies, and you got some change. You got 10 movies and some extra ones to enjoy. The you got three hours of content, more than likely. I don't know what this is going to edit into, but it's going to be pretty goddamn long. The first new show of 2020 death by dvd going into year 11 11 years of us doing this and uh you know just what we were talking about it's not for downloads or views or fame for some weird reason somebody keeps listening the ashtray's full the bottle is empty welcome 2020 australia is on fire and we're beginning to go into world war three in front of a dead studio audience. Portions of today's programming have been mechanically reproduced. The management and the staff wish you a pleasant good night and good morning. And now our national anthem. 